0: Astonishing Legends would like to thank Mint Mobile, Warby Parker, Quip, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors at Patreon.com for making tonight's show possible. There are a lot of frightening things in this world, things we just don't understand. We've talked about them extensively on Astonishing Legends in the past, and we'll continue to discuss them for the foreseeable future. But what if some of the things that scares the most don't come from this world at all? What if they come from somewhere else? And what if they have so much power they can control what we see, hear, and even do with nothing more than a thought? Tonight, we'll meet a man who says he's encountered beings like that, not just once or twice, but multiple times throughout his life with one of those encounters becoming the beginning of the end for his closest friend. Terry Lovelace is a former active duty member of the United States Air Force, serving from 1973 to 1979. He's also a trained medic and EMT with extensive emergency room experience from his posting at Whiteman Air Force Base. After he left the Air Force, Mr. Lovelace earned his Juris Doctor from Western Michigan University and was admitted to the bar that same year ultimately serving as a felony prosecutor, as well as an assistant attorney general of American Samoa in 2005, before eventually becoming the state's attorney for Vermont's Board of Medical Practice in 2012, and then retiring. Mr. Lovelace joins us to share a series of harrowing personal experiences that have taken place over the course of his life, all the way back to his childhood. These stories have been detailed in his book, Incident at Devil's Den, A True Story, And for our money, it's one of the most frightening abduction stories we've ever heard. So as we enter the fall season here at Astonishing Legends, settle in with your headphones by the fireplace or wherever you are and contemplate the changing of the seasons while you learn what it might be like to be tagged like a wild animal and tracked your entire life. (laughs)
1: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends.
0: I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. We have already opened our doors to monsters. They have arrived. Terry Lovelace, from his book Incident at Devil's Den, A True Story. Join us tonight as we interview a man with
1: compelling proof a foreign object was placed under his skin by unknown means. That we are. Thanks for coming back, folks, and happy almost Halloween. I mean, this is it. Our show has just turned five years old, if you can believe that. And if you've been with us a long time, thank you so much for your support. If you're only just now joining us, welcome aboard. If you're new to the fold, be aware that in October, we dial things up a bit around here, so hang on to your hat. A couple of quick notes right out of the gate on that. We have once again designed some new limited edition Halloween merch for you guys this year. The hoodies were a big hit last year, but those were one-offs, so we're back this year with some new stuff with Jack-O-Lantern Astonishing Owl on it. We've got a t-shirt, a crew neck, and a pullover hoodie, and yes, all of them glow in the dark. So head over to AstonishingLegends.com and click on store to check those out. Those are all pre-order, which means we produce them to order once the orders are placed, but they should ship out in the next couple of weeks or so, and
0: will only be briefly available, so move fast if you want one. A few other fun things to mention here. We recently did guest appearances on a couple of shows and want to let you guys know about them. The first is a brand new podcast hosted and produced by WJCT Jacksonville's Lindsay Kilbride. Lindsay was named the best radio reporter in a large market by the Florida Associated Press broadcasters in 2018, and she's the special projects producer at WJCT, where she's launched an amazing new podcast called Oddball.
1: Yeah, this is someone after my own heart here, folks. This entire show is dedicated to the Sphere, and she's been working on it a long time, much longer than we did. It's coincidental that it launched so soon after our own series on the sphere, and we're already enjoying it immensely. So if you'd like to hear a different and locally-based professional journalist perspective on the amazing story of the sphere, check
0: out Oddball wherever you get your podcasts. Yes, and if you listen regularly, you might just hear us on there talking about our experiences investigating the sphere in Episode 5, releasing November 4th of 2019. But the series has already started, so subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. We also recently joined our friend Reese Waters on his new show, Podstarter. This is a great show for people who want to get started podcasting, which to us seems like pretty much everybody. (laughs) Yes, and Reese is great at getting down to the nuts and bolts of what it
1: takes to get going in the business. Reese used to produce for the BBC, and we first crossed paths with him when he helped us with a ton of resources for our shows on episode 112 and 113 of Astonishing Legends, Roz Welsh, and the uh, 113 was called UFO School
0: Days, about a sighting at a school, a famous sighting at a Welsh school there. Yeah, a bunch of other ones, too. When he asked us to come on and talk about how we got started, we warned him there was no way to do that without forcing him to have to air at least two episodes with us because we talk so darn much, and sure enough, that came to pass. So find Podstarter wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe today. And look, or listen, rather, for us in episodes eight and nine of the show, both of which have already posted and are available now, if you want to hear how a couple of guys with absolutely no experience in podcasting got where we are today. Wait, uh, where are we? I don't know.
1: I thought you knew. (laughs) All right. Last thing we wanted to mention is that for your listening pleasure, we'd like to invite you to check out the first new show from Astonishing Legends Productions since we started five years ago, The Midnight Library. We ran the premiere episode here in our feed last week, and thousands of you have already subscribed. For those of you that haven't, you can find and subscribe to The Midnight Library Anywhere you get your podcasts. You'll find it's pretty different from what we do here, but the stories told by our host, Miranda Merrick, definitely fall into the Astonishing Legends wheelhouse, so check it out. Oh, and one last thing before we dive in. Visit patreon.com astonishinglegends for additional content, including commercial-free versions of the Astonishing Legends podcast for our $5 and above patrons. Before we get into this, I did want to just quickly tell everybody a few things to listen out for in Terry's story, because we're not coming back after the interview. So I wanted to set the stage a little bit here. The first thing I want to mention is I was really fascinated by how Terry and his friend that were super experienced, certified EMTs that actually drove an ambulance for the military. They worked in the ER at the base that they were at. They were highly organized individuals. But in a way, for the primary experience that you're going to hear about, it seems like they were sloppily summoned to this rendezvous, almost like a poorly operated marionette. And as a result, they clumsily arrived at their destination. They forgot a good deal of the things that they intended to bring because whatever brought them there only cared about one thing, and that was getting them to the time and place they needed to be to be intercepted. For me, this is one of the most frightening components of the story. It's a sort of Close Encounters vibe to their desire to get to this location. They had the goal of going there in mind under what was almost a guise of a camping trip, which they took steps to prepare for, but then left prominent items behind, seemingly forgetting them. Like Terry's really nice camera. He had an obsession with Ansel Adams. He wanted to take these great wildlife pictures. That was his whole thing. He completely left all of that behind. He left behind an ax that he had borrowed from a neighbor for collecting firewood. And what's interesting to me about that is the camera could have documented evidence. It could have been a great documentation of that, although his friend Toby did have a camera, a smaller, less expensive camera, that they did not use in the circumstances, and you'll hear about why. But then also he forgot the axe. And to me, it's like, all right, so we, he forgot the nice camera that could have gotten great pictures. He also forgot something that could be used as a weapon. But who knows the reasons that those things were forgotten. Uh, when you listen to the story, think about how they got to this place and then combine it with the location which we think we actually found on Google Earth. And we just hung up with Terry. We've been talking to him for 40 minutes about this place that we thought might have been where he wound up. And he agreed that he was 90% sure after we showed it to him that it seemed like where everything happened. In fact, he was pretty shocked when he was looking at it on Google Maps after we sent him a link to it. It has sort of a Devil's Tower vibe. It's a raised up plateau. It's devoid of trees. It is a triangle type shape in itself or sort of a horseshoe like he describes in his story that's about 700 feet by 700 feet by 1100 feet. So when you listen to the story, think about that. If you're in a position where you can look on your phone or on a computer while you're listening, now we know a lot of people aren't, but if you are, then go to our show notes for this episode and you'll see a link. Uh, you can actually look at where this all went down. Um, it's pretty cool. Also, just one other quick note about a little bit of a nonlinear nature to the way that he relays the story. When they first arrived at the location where the primary experience took place, they actually took an initial hike that is kind of unusual, where they wound up taking a nap. You'll hear him talking about that. He told the main part of the story first, and then the part about the hike later. So just be prepared for that, because it's very interesting to me. There's more details in the book than the interview about the hike, because they both laid down for a minute, and he recalled later that he felt like something might have happened to him, but not Toby during that particular experience. And that was the prelude to the, the main experience, which you'll be hearing about, as well as his life story. So you should get his book if this story interests you. But those are just a couple of things I wanted to let you guys know before we roll into the interview. And uh, Forrest, I, I believe you wanted to say something?
0: Yes, I just have a few things I want to say before we get started and roll the interview here. I'm going to be serious here for a second because this is a serious topic and it was very traumatic for our guest tonight and extremely serious and it's affected his entire life. So I just want to sincerely say a few things before we get started here. So the interview you're about to hear deals with one of the most fascinating and mind-blowing personal accounts we've ever heard and read about and truly also one of the most terrifying it's also probably one of the most unbelievable and controversial stories you may have come across. And that's unbelievable in the wondrous sense of the word, not in the dismissive sense. Many of you might find it hard to believe and or accept, and belief and acceptance are two different things in my view. Like you can't believe that some alcohol can be fattening, but you have to accept it. Many of you are going to find this story simply outrageous, But there's one thing we'd like everyone to keep in mind as they listen. This account may seem outrageous, but you don't have to be outraged. Terry Lovelace knows it sounds outrageous, and he also knows what was done to him was outrageous. As far as Terry's credibility goes, what we think shouldn't matter. That's something you, as the listeners, will have to decide for yourselves, as we always say. But what we can tell you is that after reading his book, exchanging emails, and talking with him for hours on and off the air, he strikes us as being forthright, clear-headed, rational, genuine and, you know, that word we're all looking for credible, as much as any other witness to the incredible we've ever come across, whether as interview subjects or as friends and family. So of course, we've not known him very long, but on the other hand, people have close friends and relatives who don't believe their paranormal stories. So when someone who seems credible tells you something incredible, what do you do with that? Where do you file it? We all have to decide for ourselves. But in dealing with the outrageous, think about this for a moment. What makes something outrageous in your view? Is it something you've just never heard of or experienced for yourself? Because frankly, most of the topics we deal with on this show are considered unbelievable and outrageous. To many, everything about the paranormal is preposterous. It's all outrageous. But even if you believe a little, we all have a personal line of belief we won't cross. For instance, you might believe in an afterlife, but not ghosts and spirits. You might believe there are unknown strange animals out in the wild we've just never discovered, but you don't believe in Bigfoot. Or you might believe in Bigfoot, but not Mothman. And you could believe there are unidentified flying objects in our skies or unknown aerial phenomenon as our own U.S. Navy has fessed up to, but you think it's advanced human technology, not alien. Or you think there are aliens, but stories of abduction just can't be true. So ask yourself, where is your line of belief, and why do you draw it where it is? Is it because you think you know the truth, or is it a hunch, or is it out of fear? Does it just seem impossible? How do you know what's possible? Because of your limited life experience, or because someone told you what is and what isn't? And finally, this is a thought I've had since we first started doing this show and, of course, soon after started getting critical and angry responses from people about the subjects we've covered and why would we even consider it. And I was reminded of this principle again while listening to a bonus interview with John E. L. Tenney on our friend Rob Kristofferson's podcast, Our Strange Skies, back in June of 2019. They were talking about J. Allen Hynek's own reliability gauge for the cases he came across, uh, something called his Strangeness Probability Index, I think, and also they were talking about all the fantastical and crazy stories you see covered on TV and hear from people's testimonies. But here's the point Mr. Tenney and I would like to make. You don't have to believe any of it. No one's forcing you to believe anything about anyone else's experience, and you don't have to make it part of your own belief system. Their experience is their own and it doesn't have to be yours. You can just let it exist as someone else's testimony. What you choose to believe about it, if anything, is up to you. That is to say, of course stories like these are outrageous. Everyone agrees they're outrageous, but you don't have to be outraged. You don't have to get upset, and you don't have to get angry, and you don't have to send negative messages to Terry or us for that matter. And if his account makes you angry, ask yourself why it does and be honest. It's Terry's story, and if true, then there's probably a very select, powerful, and secretive group that knows the whole truth, and there's a very slim chance you're part of that special group. But maybe, out of all these unbelievable accounts, even if you don't believe them, there's something, a description, or an idea that speaks to you and resonates and has meaning, and maybe you'll find it useful in expanding your own awareness and understanding. So all we ask is that when you listen to this interview, please try and keep all of this in mind, and please keep that mind open. Your sense of imagination will come in handy too. And then consider the possibilities and the resulting implications. Because if none of Terry Lovelace's story is true, then you don't have to worry. You and your beliefs are safe. It was hopefully just an entertaining tale. If some of his story is true and accurate as he remembers it, then it's still part of the biggest story in the history of humanity, and maybe even the universe. If all of his story is true, well then. We'd like to welcome Terry
1: Lovelace to our show. We are so glad to have you on, Terry. We really appreciate your taking the time to sit down and talk to us today.
2: Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Could you introduce yourself to our audience and just tell them a little bit about your background and what you were doing in life before all of this came to a head? Yeah.
2: Yeah, again, my name is Terry Lovelace. I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri. Grew up there in the South City. And uh, when I graduated from my high school in 1973, I was in the United States Air Force from 1973 to 1979. Afterwards, I completed a bachelor's degree in psychology and a law degree at Michigan and worked as an attorney in private practice there for a while uh, until I was appointed an assistant attorney general the United States Territory of American Samoa, which was great. It's a beautiful place. After that, I finished my legal career at uh, the state of Vermont, where I was a uh, state's attorney for their board of medical practice. And uh, now I write books, or well, one book anyway, maybe another one to come. But the genesis of the story, this all started, I guess, in 2012. In 2012, I got out of bed in the morning, I found I couldn't bear weight on my right leg, and I, and I fell. And my wife took me to the emergency room. I get all my medical care from the VA, which is kind of an interesting twist. And I think I sent you some copies of my x-rays. Yes. I was in the x-ray room, and the x-ray technician seemed kind of confused. And she says, Mr. Lovelace, have you had a shrapnel wound or an accident of some kind that can account for a piece of metal and wires being in your leg? And I said, uh no. And she seemed perplexed. And she took like eight shots of my leg, of my right knee in particular. And I said, is there something inside my knee? Is that what you're saying, can I see? And she said, sure, I called a radiologist. He's on his way down to take a look. And she popped a film, an x-ray film, in um, one of those view boxes. And on my right knee, you don't need a medical degree to see it. There's a obviously man-made structure about the size of your fingernail inside my knee, kind of lateral with two wires attached running up toward my head. So at about this time, as I'm looking at this, the radiologist walks in and says, hmm, he looks at the x-ray, and he's talking to the technician, completely ignoring me. And finally he walks over to me and he pokes me in the knee and says, it'll be right here. And I said, uh, what'll be right here, doctor? And he says, you're gonna have a scar right here because you can't violate the integrity of the skin and introduce a foreign body this deep into the fashion tissue without there being a scar, without there being scar tissue. And I said, Well, doctor, I don't have a scar there. And he says, Well, you do. You probably just don't remember. Probably happened maybe when you were young. And he had an intern with him. And I think he was in kind of teaching mode. And he asked her to go get a, a black light because he told me that scar tissue will fluoresce under a black light. So she comes back with this handheld black light and they examined my knee again. And he looks at my knee for like 10 minutes and he said, you don't have a scar. I said, well, doctor, how often is it that you find a foreign object underneath the skin like this and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, never. He said, I've been a radiologist for 23 years. I've never seen this before. And I said, well, that's interesting. And he says, "Uh, well, there's, there's more. And he showed me the shot, the x-ray of my leg from the side view. And in my calf muscle, there are an arrangement of tic-tac-size objects arranged in a floral pattern. And you should have that x-ray. Yes. And he says that uh, on x-ray film, at least, these objects have the same density of bone. But he said bone doesn't normally just sprout in the middle of muscle tissue much less does it arrange itself in such a symmetric pattern as this. He said, this is very strange. I've never seen this before. So when I saw that film, it was jarring to me. It really was like a slap in the face for some reason. Because instantly, I knew that this had something to do with my camping trip in 1977, which I'll get to tell you about. Would you say
1: at that point in your life that that 1977 camping trip was... A repressed memory or just a thing? You're like, well, that happened and I'm not going to think about it anymore. What was the revelation that you felt when you realized that you had this thing under your skin?
2: That these things had put their hands on me and that made my skin crawl. Yeah. Because seeing, having a visual experience is one thing. And I do have a memory of being on an examination table while I was inside this thing, was crap. But it was validation that what happened to me really happened, that this wasn't some type of confabulation or some kind of, uh, I mean, my, my buddy Toby was there with me. And the two of us, to have the same recall, the same memory, the same experience, it just validates the story. Which is why I think one of the reasons that the Air Force went through so much trouble to separate the two of us. Because as I said, two people telling the same story has a lot more validity than just a single person Telling their story. Well, let's
1: actually get to that story if you're comfortable going to that. Would you share with our listeners the story of the incident from 1977?
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Okay. It's kind of the meat and potatoes of everything here. Yeah, sure. My buddy, I call him Toby. Toby and I worked together in the emergency room as EMTs. We drove an ambulance. If there was a plane crash or a car accident or a heart attack, anything on base that needed an uh, ambulance, we were it and we would go out and do what we had to do. And we both liked the night shift because my friend Toby was absolutely fascinated with the night sky. I mean, this kid was the same age as I. We were both 22 years old at the time. And he knew every constellation in the sky. I mean, he could time satellites and tell me when one would be coming by. And, you know, I didn't think about it at the time. But in retrospect, I wonder how far back his fascination with the night sky goes and if it goes back to childhood because I had some incidents in my childhood.
1: And I definitely want to talk about that after you tell this story, but what you're saying is that you thought that there may have been a longstanding connection with that interest that would be connected to prior experiences, essentially.
2: That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay. So Toby and I were, were best of friends. We were both married. I'm still married 42 years, 43 something. Impressive. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, no, I'm very fortunate. And, uh, Toby was married too, and his wife and my wife were best of friends. One day, Toby came to me you know, like at 2 a.m. and said, hey, I got an idea, man. Let's go camping. And I remember laughing and saying, man, what are you talking about? We're city kids, Toby. You know, I grew up in St. Louis City. He grew up in Flint, Michigan. I said, neither one of us ever been camping in our life. What do we know about camping? And he's like, no, no, no. Think about it. Think about it. Because I was known in the hospital squadron as an amateur photographer. I had a dark room set up where I could develop black and white film. I had it set up inside my home and had a new Yashica camera that I was just dying to try out. But unfortunately for me, we were both living on a SAC base. SAC is Strategic Air Command. It's the nuclear part of the Air Force at that time. It's since been reorganized, but the base we were on had a contingent of B52 bombers armed with nuclear weapons and a squadron of Minuteman II ICBM intercontinental ballistic missiles all armed with five nuclear weapons independently targeted so when you live in that environment there's really no opportunities to photograph anything <laughs> camera's just a frown upon so at at that time I, I was really interested in photographing wildlife and Interestingly, within probably 45 minutes' drive of Whiteman Air Force Base, there are a half dozen beautiful parks that we could have gone to. But my friend Toby was just insistent. He's like, no, man. He says, this is the place we got to go. And in retrospect, I wonder where this idea came from. And I kind of tried to veto the idea. And he said, well, just think about it for a couple of days. And I did. And the more I thought about it, the more I wasn't obsessed about it, but I was close. I bought into the idea and said, okay, let's go. You know, what do you got to know to go camping? So we went, we went to the base library and, you know, we were known as, they didn't use the word nerds back then. They called it bookish or something else. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> sure. We were known as nerds in the squadron. And, you know, what, what do two nerds do whenever they're going to do something they've never done before? You go gather information, right? Right, right. <laughs> so I went to the base library. I'm looking for books on how to go camping. And the best thing I could find was a 1958 Boy Scout manual. Uh-huh. And I'm all excited. I'm like, Toby, I got the book. Let's get together. We figure this out now, you know. And we get together in this living room, and he's got a notepad. And I'm like slipping through it. And I'm like, I don't think we're going to be tying any nautical knots. I don't think we're going to be, nah, taxidermy skills are not going to be needed. And there's nothing in there that's any real substance or value, of course. We decide we're, we're going to wing it, Right. Like my friend said, it's not rocket science. So we bought a cheap tent, some blow up air mattresses, grabbed some uh, blankets. We borrowed some uh, blankets from the hospital, along with uh, government strength feet, you know, the stuff to keep the mosquitoes away. Our wives packed us some food and uh, we packed up the car and we left one June, beautiful June, I think it was June 11, 1977 and headed south. And it was a little over a six hour drive and by the time we got there, we were both pretty tired. And it was just a long drive. You know, and they, I had a car without air conditioning, and it was a hot day. But we we felt over the moon. We just felt like we were like, we felt like Lewis and Clark, you know? <laughs> sure. And uh, we get to the park, and I'm like, well, I'll, I'll go in and, and get us a camping permit. And Toby actually grabbed me by the arm and said, no. Think about it. He said, if you get a camping permit, that means they're going to assign us a camping spot. And there's going to be people right next to us on both sides. There's going to be children and other undesirables running around. And he says, <laughs> oh, man, he says, you know, I might as well, pack. You might as well camp in uh, Walmart's parking lot. And that kind of made sense to me. He said, let's be real explorers. Let's go to the farthest and highest peak of this park that we can find. And I'm like, sure, let's go. And uh, the road degraded from pavement to gravel finally, just like two ruts in the road. And it's a miracle I didn't break any axle getting into this place. And we came to a, a chain across the road and a sign that was posted, no admittance, no hunting, no camping, no you know, keep out. And I said, well, I guess we're done. And my friend Toby says, no, wait a minute. And he saw that the chain was actually looped around itself and locked. So he hopped out of the car, picked up the chain from off the post and let it drop. And we drove in. We felt great. We felt like we were on top of the world. And we kept driving till we got to the highest point in the park. And we came up on this ridge and we crested this big open expanse. I call it a meadow. And it was just gorgeous. It really was very, very pretty. And it was the highest spot we could find. And it was kind of horseshoe shaped with trees all around and some large boulders at the end. And then below that, down a ways were some creeks. And it was pretty. It was just a really nice place. There was, you know, late blooming wildflowers. It was just perfect. So I'm like, cool, let's set up our tent and stuff. And I wanted to set up camp right in the middle of this meadow, because I thought that would be the best place to get a 360 degree view of everything. And my friend said, No. Let's set up by this tree line, and I'm like, "Why would we want to set up there?" He didn't have an answer, but he was insistent that we stay there. And usually, when Toby and I would argue, our wives both accused us of like an old married couple. You know, we argue back and forth about stuff. And usually, uh, my friend would cave if I pushed an issue, but he wouldn't cave on this. He was insistent that we park off to the side. And in a couple hours, we found out it was obvious that it was good idea not to be in the middle of this meadow.
1: Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Sophie, now back to the show.
2: We set up camp and we did all the fun stuff you do when you're camping. We burnt hot dogs and just laughed and had a great time, had dinner, and we're we're kicked back on these air mattresses. I'd made this little brush fire in the middle. I didn't have a hatchet or anything to get any real wood with. So there was just this uh, mound of debris and grass, but you know, it would do. And we're sitting around the campfire. And I remember saying to my friend, this must be the allure of camping. This must be why people come out here. I can see that this is really pleasant. And it was, there was a nice breeze and it was a cloudless night and there were a trillion stars out. It was just beautiful. So we're kicked back on these air mattresses and I noticed there came a lull in our conversation. And this sounds so cliche, I almost want to apologize to say it, but I say it because it's true. And that is that the breeze that we'd enjoyed earlier had died and it was still. And not only was it still, there were the crickets, and the tree frogs, and all the things in the forest that make noise had stopped making noise. And it was dead silent. And it spooked me, it unnerved me. And I asked Toby, I said, hey man, is this normal? It's awfully quiet out here. Is this the way it's supposed to be? And he listens for a minute and says, yeah, we're fine. He says, you know, it's just, we've been laughing and making a lot of noise. The crickets, the tree frogs that stuff, that will come back in a minute or two. And I remember this vividly looking at the tree in back of our tent. And I recall because I was experiencing how still it was. And I remember looking at a leaf, a particular leaf at the end of a branch, thinking, that's got to move, at least by a millimeter, that's got to move while I'm looking at it. And it didn't. And it spooked me even more. And there was just an unreal feel to it and just a real spooky vibe. And in retrospect, Had I been in my right frame of mind, I I would have said, Let's go. Let's go (laughs) home. I'm not into camping anymore. But my friend was fine, and I didn't want to seem like a coward. So I try to relax. And we sit there in the silence for a few moments, and he turns his head to the left and he says, Hey, man, were those there before? Those lights, were they there before? And I said, What? What lights? What are you talking about? And he's pointing over his left shoulder. And he says, those there on the horizon, can't you see those? And I look and sure enough on the horizon, just above the horizon, there are these three stars and each star is about the same size and luminosity as the North star. They looked artificial, if that makes sense. Sure. And we're debating on what they could be. And we know, we know aircraft lights and we know that there's no aircraft that we're aware of that has this triangular configuration of three lights. And they rotated about three-quarters of a turn. And that's when I felt this feeling of calm wash over me, the sensation of sedation. My mood was inappropriate. I was watching these lights, but almost with disinterest, almost apathetic about what was going on around me now, where just minutes earlier, I was apprehensive, nervous, spooked, Now, all of a sudden, we see these three stars, and I'm calm and I'm relaxed. And it was actually a very pleasant feeling. It was very similar to the sedation they gave you before surgery. And it came in waves. And my friend must have been in the same condition because there's hardly a word said between us. I can recall while we're watching, they started to move up. And as they rose in the horizon, the three points of light proportionately grew further apart, always equidistant to one another. And it went up into the air. And as it does, it's tumbling and turning and twisting. So you can see like two lights and three lights and then like a line. And then, but you could see that it's definitely a triangle and it's definitely a solid object. And in between the points of light, the sky is black. Where the sky on the outside of the triangle is blue because there were a lot of lot of light from the stars.
0: So, for orientation's sake, are we seeing then the craft flat towards you, so that you're seeing a triangle with the apex at the top, or pointing you know straight to the heavens and the flat side towards the bottom of the earth? So it's kind of moving, rotating clockwise, I believe you said, and then coming towards you towards your location and the flat side is facing you
2: correct correct but as it gained altitude it also gained size which meant it was coming in our direction and it also did this tumbling thing where we were no longer looking at just the flat side of the bottom of the triangle we would see it twist and it, as it did the three points of light would change position and uh but you know I remember thinking it was moving with purpose, it wasn't just tumbling you know haphazardly it, it was moving with purpose. Well, I thought it a very good clip i don't know how far the horizon was, but this thing traveled in the course of fifteen minutes, and it seemed like it was just right on top of us, and we could see off in the distance because the starlight was so bright, we could see this giant black triangle, the shadow of the thing move across the forest and come into the tree line with the lights still twinkling on the apex of each part of the triangle. And the thing comes to a stop right over the meadow. Had we camped where I wanted to camp, we'd have been directly underneath the center of the thing. So how Toby knew not to camp there, I don't know, but he did.
1: Does that mean you were at your current position? You were offset from it when
2: it came to a stop? Correct we were offset so we had a view of it and that's when we could see we could really get an idea how big this thing was and as I stated in my book it's a city block on each end each leg of the triangle and on the apex of each point there is what I called a light bar and it was this panel that ran this thing was five stories tall I mean it really was like somebody levitated a five story office building. And it's hanging in midair, and, I, and I'd guesstimated it to be at about 3,000 feet. It's over our heads. And we can see on this light bar that's five stories tall an intense little beam of light that would travel up and down. And I remember I had the thought, that's what gives it the illusion of a twinkling star when it's in the sky.
1: You said when it was approaching, it was tumbling in a way. I'm curious about orientation, because initially when, when Toby first saw the three points of light, Would that mean that at that point, as far away as it was, if it has a bottom or it has a bottom by the time it comes to you, then when the distance, that bottom would have been oriented vertically for you to see those three lights and that it changed its position by 90 degrees when it came to a rest over the field? Correct. Okay.
2: Yeah, it was sitting on
1: its side, if you will. Right. Whatever is inside of it obviously does not have a relationship or it is independent gravitationally of Earth. Got to be. Okay. That's fascinating. Okay.
2: But when it came to a dead halt over the meadow, we were looking at it from the bottom. Right. And we could see two points of light. Of course, a third was hidden from us, but the lights had dimmed somewhat. But I still, to this day, I can't understand why this thing wasn't seen in five counties. I remember that the feeling of calm, that feeling of sedation was still with me. And the only noise that I heard was our campfire had just about extinguished, just burned itself out. And we're looking up at this giant triangle thing. And our response to it, again, is inappropriate. Instead of being excited or scared, or we're just almost casual observers. And during this process, I'm looking at it, Toby's looking at it, and it shot a beam of light out of the bottom, Dead center from underneath of the thing became a beam of light. And again, it's about 3000 feet overhead. And this beam of light was a visible beam of light. It was like uh, a searchlight cutting through heavy fog, but there was no fog. It was crystal clear, but this light we saw was visible and it was about six inches in diameter and it landed right dead in the middle of our campfire and stayed there for like a minute and then just flipped off like somebody flipped a switch. And we had no discussion about this. We're just waiting to see what's gonna happen next. And a few seconds later, there came a second beam of light. This one was like a laser. In 1977, lasers were kind of a a new thing. So, I mean, I knew what a laser was and I knew that this beam of light had those qualities. It was bluish purple and it was about the diameter of a pencil and it would land in the campsite and stay in one position for less than a tenth of a second, and then turn off and then turn back on in a different location. So it gave the illusion that this beam of light was just dancing, darting all over the campsite. And I remember thinking then that this thing is scanning us. And it struck me in the head and in the chest. I felt nothing, but I could see the the beam of light on me. And again, it was a visible beam of light. It wasn't just the red dot on my chest. I could trace the beam of light all the way up almost to the center of the ship.
1: During this time, you're experiencing a general sense of apathy.
2: Correct. Apathy. We were we were inappropriately disinterested. We should have been more curious about it. And in, in a normal daily life, we would have been. But something had changed. Something was different. It was a unique sensation that makes a... a in retrospect, it was terrifying.
1: Would you compare it to sort of a trance-like state?
2: Yes, I would. Again, that that the uh, injection they give you before surgery puts you kind of in that twilight zone kind of thing. That's what this felt like. I think it would be a good word for it. Okay. And we're not talking. There's no conversation. And we sat for what I would estimate to be 10 minutes, maybe a quarter hour. And my buddy Toby spoke up. And when he spoke up, he startled me. And, you know, I've got all this other stuff going on around me. I got this 3,000-foot, you know, giant five-story medical building-like thing over my head. And I'm not startled by that. But my friend speaks up, and it startled me. I don't understand. But he spoke up, and he said, show's over. And I followed his lead. He stood up, picked up his air mattress, and walked over to the tent and threw it in and climbed in afterward and fell face down on the air mattress. And I followed suit without even much thought. I threw my air mattress in, I fell in face first on top of it. And the last two things I remember was that Toby had been wrong because the crickets and the tree frogs never did return. And I remember he was already snoring softly and all I wanted to do was sleep. And that's what I did, it was lights out. Later on, we calculate that we must have spent about, um, about four hours must have passed. And my next memory is this flood of light through the canvas of the tent that lit up the interior of the tent. I mean, like a ballpark at night. It was uh, just brilliant flashes at odd intervals of white and yellow and maybe greenish lights It would illuminate the inside of the tent. In the 1960s, they had these cameras that had disposable bulbs that you could screw in. Mm -hmm. And those things would go off. And I mean, you would see nothing but blue every time you blinked for the next hour because they were so bright. That's how bright this light was. It was just insanely bright. And when I wake up, I'm confused and I don't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking these lights, I'm thinking, it must be, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. We're camping. And then I'm thinking, these lights, I guess it's a park ranger's truck. There's park rangers here to kick us out of the park. Yeah, that's right. I noticed that I'm hurting, that my joints all over hurt. I'm aching. I feel like I just run five miles. And I can hear this hum that was a low bass-like hum, like standing next to a piece of big machinery, like standing next to like a big diesel locomotive. There's that this low bass hum that you more feel in your chest than you hear. It was just a powerful noise. And I got to my knees and I look at my friend. Toby was on his knees and he's peering out through a flap in the tent at something. And in one of these flashes of light, I can see that he's been crying. And at that point, all of the calm, all of the sedation is gone. All of a sudden, I am terrified. I am so afraid because I don't know what's going on, but I know it's not park rangers out there. And I asked Toby, I said, Toby, what is it, man? Is it park rangers? And he did the universal thing about putting his hand across his lips and saying, Shh, I think they are still walking around out there. And I'm like, "Who, Toby, who's walking around out there? And I got to my knees. And with my left shoulder, I scooted him over a little bit and I peeled back the flap of my tent. And this is a tiny two-man tent and I'm peering out at this meadow. And I noticed two things. I noticed that the craft that had been 3,000 feet over our heads when we went to bed had descended and is now more like 30 feet over our heads. I shouldn't say it was over our heads because again, we're kind of offset near this tree line. But we could see this thing and we could see windows and they were lit from the inside and we could see movement we couldn't see figures and it was absolutely enormous the size of the thing was just intimidating and there are these figures and i took them at first to be children and i said toby what the hell are these kids doing out here man i mean what are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night and he starts sobbing and he says Terry, those ain't no little kids, man. They took us and they hurt us. Don't you remember? And I did remember. I had flashes of memory. I didn't have a clear, linear memory, like a timeline of events that happened. But I had flashes of memory of being inside this thing. We were both just terrified. We were so afraid we we didn't want to move. So I felt like, like frozen out of fear. And uh, I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to leave the tent. I mean, my, my second thought was run for the car. But even though it's just a thin piece of canvas, I felt at least by being inside this tent, we had some kind of cover. We weren't visible. And I felt like we would be vulnerable once we left the tent and made the dart to go to the car. So we sat there and we watched. And we saw these little figures and there were about 15, I'm guessing a dozen, more than a dozen, probably 15 of these little guys and they're all paired up into twos and threes and they're wandering around this meadow. And then there's a light that came on from underneath this, this craft again. And it had that same quality to it that that light that landed in our campfire had, that searchlight through heavy fog quality of a visible light. And this beam of light was about 30 feet in diameter, and it was a column, circular. And these little guys would wander into this light in pairs and in threes and just dissolve. And remember on the old Star Trek series, how when people were in the thing, they would show them kind of dissolve. from oh, yeah. the Transporter or whatever. Sure, sure. Very, very similar to that. They would wander into that thing, and they'd become translucent, and then just dissolve into the to the white light. So we watched, and the last pair, we thought were the last pair, wandered into the light, they dissolved, and then as soon as they were gone, the light clicks off. Again, like someone just flipped the switch, it was gone. And at that time, the humming noise increased a bit, and the lights on the points of the triangle that had been multicolored, yellow and light greenish and white, switched to all white. And then that white light, very intense, very bright, did this thing of running up and down that light bar on the side of the, of the craft. And it took off. And I mean, it didn't take off like a rocket. It lifted off about like a hot air balloon would. and. We rolled over on our backs and we had our heads sticking out of the tent and we watched it until it was three points of light and then one point of light and then it was gone. And we sat in silence and I remember my, my friend is, is hyperventilating and I'm like, Toby, man, you got to get a hold of your breathing. You got to get control of yourself. And, uh, and he does. And now I'm afraid. I, I don't want to move. And he's like, Terry, man, we got to get out of here. And I'm like, I know. So Toby kind of takes over and says, you grab your keys, your wallet. I've got this flashlight. Let's make a run for the car and we'll get the hell out of here. So we did. We made a run for the car and um, I tripped. Toby got to the car before me. And of course, he's locked out. Uh, I got there. I unlocked the car. I got in, slid across this big bench seat, unlocked his side, and he got in. We slammed the door shut, hit all the locks. And he said, are we good? And I knew what he meant. He said, is there anything in here with us other than the two of us? And I knew what he meant. And I turned on the overhead light and we looked the car over real good. And it was just us, thankfully. That's when I noticed the thirst. I had never in my life felt so thirsty. I was so dehydrated Uh, Later, we'd be admitted to the hospital with the diagnosis of acute dehydration. And I had uh, just incredible body aches. But we got to the car, and Toby had the forethought, uh, even though he had an unerring sense of direction. When we were driving into this place, he grabbed a bank envelope out of my glove box and had a little pencil and kind of made a map. Because there were no landmarks. The road looked the same. It was just road and trees. So we had to have something to refer to to you know where to turn, how to get out of there. Had he not made that map, you know, I think we'd been driving around back there until daylight. But fortunately, we got out of there and uh, hit pavement and started driving north. Whatever they did to us, um, they gave a double measure to my friend because he was he was hurt. There's no way he could drive. I know my eyes were swollen. His eyes were swollen almost shut, and we drove. In 1977, this area in southwest Missouri was mostly just soybeans and cornfields and, and um, mountains. At this time, there was very, very little there. Now, it's built up, of course, and, and but back then, there was hardly a thing. We We drove for about an hour, and my goal was to put as much distance between us and this place as I could possibly do. You know, without begging to be pulled over by one of the local cops, drive as fast as I thought I could get away with. We finally came to a little gas station that was open. I pulled up and this was back in the day when you didn't pump your own gas, they did it for you. And I told the guy to fill it up and I ran to the men's room and then went and got the key and got into the men's room and it was a dirty bathroom and this grungy faucet. And I turned the water on, and I cut my hands underneath, and I'm drinking and drinking and drinking until I can hold no more. And that's when I got my first glance at my body, and it looked like the worst sunburn I'd ever had in my life without blistering. I didn't have any blisters anywhere, but I had this red, you want to call it a rash or a burn, like it was a burn, on the soles of my feet. I mean, I pulled up my shirt. Under my arms were burnt. So, whatever had burnt us did it to our entire body. And I opened the door of the men's room and I recall Toby was leaning against um, a post. He looked like he was about to fall over. There's no way he could drive. We went in and I bought a six pack of orange soda and he bought a gallon of some kind of grape drink. And I remember there was a guy behind the counter who was like straight out of the out of the uh, John Deere tractor catalog, you know, with the plaid shirt, and I, I think he had a John Deere hat. He had a hat on. <laughs> he looked to be in his 80s, so he was sturdily built and seemed, you know, like he had his wits about him, and I'm standing there with my money to pay, and uh, he's taking his time, and he picks up his glasses. He puts on his glasses, and he looks at me up and down, and then Toby comes in and back of him, and he looks Toby up and down. Then he said, And I thought that this was so kind. He said, it it ain't none of my business, but what the hell you fellas been into? And uh, I told him, honestly, I don't know. And he said, well, you better get yourself someplace where you can get yourself some help. He said, you want to call somebody? You can use my phone. And I'm like, no, 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 we're just going to the airbase. I think we'll be okay. But that was like the one shining bright spot was this guy's uh, concern for our safety. Made it back to the car, and uh, I just drained these six cans of orange soda like nothing. There was a change that I should note. And if you ever talk to Travis Walton, and you ask him about the people that he shared his experience with, this wasn't an uncommon thing. This isn't an uncommon occurrence. I think Betty and Barney Hill are the exception to the rule. I don't know why, but suddenly I'm looking at Toby, and I'm thinking, I want nothing to do with this guy. And here, an hour earlier, this is my guy's my best friend in the world, and I can't today reconcile that emotion, but that's how I felt. And I drove the remaining four and a half hours and got us to the airbase. And he was curled up in a fetal position. And when we were about ten minutes away, I reached over and grabbed him by the shoulder and I said, "Hey, Tob, we're about ten minutes, ETA, man, uh, estimated time of arrival." He roused and, uh, like me, he was hurting. And I got in the base and I dropped him off. We both lived in SEAL housing. In SEAL housing is a section of uh, free housing for non-commissioned officers, for enlisted men. I dropped him off at his house and I drove to my house just a block or two away. And I got out of the car and I went in the door and my wife is like, are you home already? She wasn't expecting us for another day and a half. And I'm like, yeah. And she looks at me and she's like, oh my God, what in the world? happened to you? Did you get sunburned? And I said, I don't know, but do we have anything to drink? And I started pounding powdered lemonade as fast as she could pour it. And she bent over and she says, you know, I think you've got a fever. She took my temperature and uh, I had 103.8, which is a high temperature for an adult. And she brought me three aspirin that I chewed up and drew some bath water and brought my temperature down. And she says, come on, I'll take you to the hospital. And you got to understand the hospital is where we work. It's where Toby and I, all the people there were our friends. And uh, everybody knew that we were making this camping trip. I was kind of apprehensive about going, kind of embarrassed, actually. But I felt so bad, I didn't care. And she took us to the hospital. And the doctor there asked my wife to go home, because I changed my clothes when I got in the bath, to go home and bag up everything that I wore and everything that I brought back with me and put it in this bag and bring it back. And she did that. I don't know why, but that's what they asked her to do. They were expecting us, actually. And I found out why. We left everything there at that campsite. And inside Toby's backpack was written with magic marker his name and address on the base. And we had USAF blankets there, and the military bottles of DEET, So it was no mystery, you know, it wasn't tough for the park rangers to figure out where we were. They found our campsite, which, of course, they thought suspicious, you know. Then they called the base commander, base commander got the hospital commander involved, and the security police got involved. And uh, they admitted me to the hospital after a long examination. They diagnosed I had acute dehydration. I had this red burn all over my body. And my eyes had um, what was referred to as an arc welder's burn. The cornea of my eyes had been burned by some mechanism. And they were kind enough. I, I had a room to myself, which was you know, a bonus for an enlisted man. Normally, they would put me on an open ward. And I kept the lights turned out. And um, they had two IVs running full tilt. And it was the evening of my second night. And I knew I was going to be going home the following day. I was getting pain meds every four hours when I asked for it. And I, I asked for it. When my night nurse came in, these two guys in blue business suits followed her into the room. And uh, she turned around and kind of looked puzzled. And then they pulled out credentials and showed they were uh, from the OSI. The OSI is the Air Force. It's the Office of Special Investigation. It's the investigative branch of the Air Force's security police. As NCIS is to the Navy, the OSI is to the Air Force. The one guy who did all the talking was about 50. He had this flat-top haircut that was popular back in the day. He just was intimidating. The guy was just intimidating. He looked intimidating. I think he wanted to be intimidating, and he succeeded. He intimidated me. And these two guys worked in unison. The, The captain, the younger guy in his 30s, went to the bottom of the bed, because the bed was manual, it wasn't electric. You had to crank it to move the head up. And he cranked the head up so I was sitting straight up right. And the major, the guy in charge, scooped everything off my tray table and slid it under my, uh, under my chest. And they, they both showed me their credentials. And I, I referred to him to, in the book as Special Agent Gregory. He said, I'm gonna be in charge of your case. And I thought, oh my God, I got a case? And that scared me to death. And I thought, my God, what do we do? Do we burn down the forest? Why are these guys here to talk to us? And then I thought, oh, yeah, I bet this has something to do with this five story medical building we saw floating over our heads, you know, just two days earlier.
0: To me, when I read this in the book, it sounded unusual that for such a large park, a massive park, that the rangers there, kind of unlikely that they would just happen upon your campsite, which was just a tent at that time, no car.
2: No car, a tent, air mattresses and blankets laying around. That was it.
0: It just sounded to me that somebody other than the park rangers knew you were there to go looking for that spot.
2: You know, I've thought about that often. And I've thought about, you know, well, I don't think our campfire would have put out any smoke by the time it became daylight. My only thought was the chain being lying in the ground We had given him some tent.
1: That's what I was thinking.
2: But there was yeah. more going on here and I'll get to that and why I know that there was more going on here. But I, he scooped everything off my table and he laid out some forms for me to sign. And he had this odd Southern accent. I don't know if you've ever heard Calvin Parker speak.
1: I haven't, no.
2: Calvin has this Louisiana draw and that's what this guy had in his speech. And he referred to me as son. And I said, Sir, am I in trouble? And he looked amused. Then he looked over at this captain, he's chuckling. And he says, Son, would we be here if you weren't in trouble? Uh, you know, I'm 22. I don't have the benefit of a law degree or life experience behind me. So I, I'm thinking I'm going to cooperate because uh, I think that's the smartest thing to do. But I'm not going to tell him that I saw a UFO because I was honestly afraid that would land me on a psych ward. And he had questions. And he the questions were asked in such a way as that his questions were intimidating. And he wanted to know, he says, well, why did you have a little campsite out there and then you abandoned it all of a sudden? He says, the only thing I can think of, son, is maybe you and your buddy had a little marijuana plot growing out there. Is that what's going on here? And the thought crossed my mind, what if somebody by happenstance had this, a small marijuana plot out there and they hung it on us? I mean, This is 1977. That would have meant Leavenworth Penitentiary. I mean, that would have been a very big deal. And um, he continued with the questions. And he laid these forms out. Now, I can hardly see because my eyes are swollen. And he kicked on the overhead lights. And I asked him, I said, sir, is there any way you could turn those off? My eyes hurt. And he says, got to see what we're doing here, son. Can't work in the dark. And I thought, nice guy. He laid out some forms in front of me. This is after he read me my rights and he dodged the question what have I done wrong what am I accused of he laid out these forms and he says son these are waivers and consents and I wanted to know well before I sign what are these and he says i told you son they're waivers and consents they give us right to take a look just to take a look in your house to see if you don't have a big bag of marijuana or something unlawful in your house you don't have anything unlawful do you i said no Well, then you shouldn't have any objection to signing these documents, should you? Do you have something to hide from us? And I said, no, sir. And I signed them, I signed all six of them, never read a word of it. And uh, he scooped them off the table. He asked us some more questions and then the nurse came back and she says, Dr. Sanders really wants Sergeant Lovelace to have his medication. And they said, well, we're done here. And um, they did search my home, by the way, and my car. Curiously, I had a bunch of photographs of the full moon because I had a telephoto lens. And again, on a nuclear base, what's there to photograph, you know? So I went out in my backyard at night, took some photographs of the full moon. And for some reason, they thought those were worth keeping. And they took those. scared the hell out of my poor wife. And the captain leaves. The nurse gives me the medication. She leaves. And then the major, Special Agent Gregory, shuts the door with his left hand pulls up a chair and sits down right next to me. And he leans over next to my ear. And he says in a whisper, son, I know. And you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something out there, didn't you? And I didn't say anything. And he says, oh, I think you know what I'm talking about, don't you? And I said, no, sir. And he followed with an expletive. He said, all I want to know is how many pictures you took of it, and where is your film? And the interesting thing is, I forgot my camera, but Toby had his. We could have taken pictures of this thing, but that thought never crossed our minds. And I don't understand that at all, because you know how people that are, that are into photography as a hobby don't you know, take pictures of everything, right? Thought never crossed my mind. And I told him, I said, sir, I never took a picture of anything again, with an expletive followed by, I don't believe you. And he left. Strange guy. And I'm scared to death. I I really am. I am wondering if if there was a marijuana plot out there, if something's coming, if I'm going to be charged with a crime. And as I'm being discharged, the hospital commander and a couple other officers came in, and he told me, uh, and he told me this in the emergency room initially, when I first got admitted. Sergeant Lovelace, You're ordered to have no contact with senior airman Tobias. That means no notes, no telephone calls, no messages through third parties, no written communications passed back and forth. You're not to give him anything. He's not to give you anything. If you run into him in the frozen foods aisle of the grocery store, you're to turn around and go in the opposite direction. Do you understand me? And I said, yes, sir. I mean, I didn't understand why they wanted us segregated and kept apart. But they did. And here's where I, that conflict comes back, because I really didn't want anything to do with the guy. But I really wanted to say goodbye to him because it came down through the grapevine that he got orders to Japan. I mean, cut at light speed. So he was going to be gone in a matter of a couple of weeks. And I told my wife, I said, I, I really want to say goodbye to Toby. And we were all kind of torn up by this. In addition to my uh, injuries, Toby, and I referred to her as Tammy, they had a couple of small children, and we didn't have children yet. My wife loved those kids, and we were all friends. I mean, we all got together, played cards, barbecued, and that was all done. It was all over. And a week or two later, I'm coming home. We're coming home from the grocery store. My wife is driving her little car, Mangia, and I said, look, I stopped by Toby's house. It's two blocks from my house. I said, I just want to run in and say goodbye to the guy. And she says, Terry, you know, the hospital commander told me, Terry, don't mess with these OSI people. And she reminded me, that's exactly what you're doing. Don't mess with these OSI people. She says, Terry, I'm afraid of these people. And I said, I know, I understand. I'm going to tell them goodbye. It'll take four minutes and I'll be out of here. So she was reticent, but she did. And she pulled over and I ran up to the house and it was the doorway I'd walked through a hundred times. And I walked in, Tammy brushed past me and they were packing and turned around and gave me a very stern look and said, you're not supposed to be here. And I said, I know, I know. I think she blamed me for whatever happened to Toby. She put the blame on me for some reason. But anyway, Toby must have heard us because he came from around the corner from the bedroom and he looked terrible. He was wearing a dirty t-shirt and jeans. Uh, He was barefoot he had on a beard and just his hair was unkempt. And he just, for someone who was always particular about their appearance, it was just striking to see him that way. And he was a short guy. I'm a little over six foot. Toby was probably four or five inches shorter than I am. And as I'm standing in the hallway, he rounds the corner. And on some level, I wanted to embrace the guy. I felt that would be appropriate. And I don't know why I didn't, but I didn't. And I held my hand out. But I'm looking at my shoes. And finally, I looked up and we made eye contact and managed to make a handshake. And I said, I just came by to wish you luck. I heard you're going to Japan. He said, yeah. And his eyes are bloodshot and he reeks of vodka. Now well, this is a guy that when we would get together and barbecue or play cards, he'd be good for maybe a beer. If he opened a second beer, you know, he'd drink no more than a half of it. And he'd obviously been doing some heavy drinking. He looked terrible, and I just said, "I wanna, I wanna wish you luck, man." And he looked up at me, and he says, "It happened, didn't it, Terry? They heard us, didn't they?" I said, "Yeah, Tobe, it happened. It all happened. You're not losing your mind, my brother. It all happened." And he said, "Why?" I said, "I don't know why. Why us? I don't know." And then I, I broke my gaze. And I turned around and I I ran to my car and we drove home. And uh, there were security police officers parked in back of my wife's car. And she was scared to death. She was crying and hysterical. She's like, they're gonna arrest us, they're gonna arrest us. I said, calm down, baby. If they were gonna arrest us, we'd be in handcuffs right now. So she calms down and we drive the two blocks home and we go pull in our driveway. I go up to the front door, got a bag of groceries in one hand. I'm opening the door and I can hear the phone ringing. And I went inside and it was a a phone that hung on the wall back in the day. And I picked it up and I said, Sergeant Lovelace, and it was Special Agent Gregory. And he said, well, you just couldn't do it, could you son? He said, you just had to go and violate an order of a commissioned officer, didn't you? And I said, sir, and that's all I got out. And he says, I just want to know if you found your film and your camera yet, if you got anything for me. And I said, no, sir. And he said, I wanna know what Toby gave you and what you gave Toby. And I said, sir, nothing. I just wanted to say goodbye to the guy. Again, with the expletives, uh, and he hung up. So they were watching me. They sure didn't want Toby and I together. And I guess in retrospect, how life would have been so different had I managed to get five or six pictures of this thing. But that didn't happen.
0: Did Toby's camera, did you ever find out if maybe they had processed some pictures from that? You never received any information about uh, what was left behind at the campsite ever again?
2: I never received any information other than during our initial interrogation in the uh, hospital room, the major trying to intimidate me. He said, you know, we found Air Force blankets we found uh, military material there that you had taken for your own private purposes, and you know that's that's against the law. And I said, "Sir, we were going to bring the blankets back. You know, it wasn't, we weren't going to keep them."
0: I just had one question about the description of your injuries because the way it sounded is that there were like circular burn marks, like you said, uh, dots that were on your torso and pretty much everywhere. Did they break the skin?
2: No, they were like pimples, but they just remained these angry red little lesions. And they measured them. They were like an eighth of an inch in diameter. And they look all the world to be like insect bites. I don't know how I could have been so badly bitten by some type of insect when we both wore DEET and I didn't even bother to undress. But I never got any word on what those lesions were. But they healed uh, quickly. They healed in a couple of days and were gone.
1: When you were taking the medication in the hospital for your pain, what was the pain that it was addressing? Was it addressing a sunburn feeling, or I think you talked a little bit in your book about achiness, that sort of thing. What What did it help with?
2: It helped with the achiness, the body aches. The burn was uncomfortable, but the body aches were really bad. Part of that I attribute to running a temperature, because I know I ran a temperature for on and off for about a week. Today, I think they probably would have just thrown two Tylenol in my direction, but uh being a member of the squadron, the hospital squadron, I think they wanted to make me comfortable. And I think that's why they gave me. You got
0: you know, special Stemarol. treatment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Terry, you said that one thing that raised some alarms, especially with the medical staff, and then of course the brass as they came in, was that you guys were giving off some radiation. And it seemed like you had maybe some radiation poisoning. Yeah. You mentioned a Geiger counter, right? They brought a Geiger counter in?
2: They did. I don't recall seeing it, but I'm in an exam table and they had this overhead light on bright. And so I had my eyes closed for most of the exam, but I heard the growl of a Geiger counter. And I knew what that meant. I knew I knew what radiation was. You know, they educate you about uh, plutonium. I mean, I was on an air base with enough plutonium to destroy Western Europe. So, yeah, I knew what radiation was. And uh I had the nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. I had a lot of the symptoms that go along with that as well.
1: Do you think you had
2: radiation poisoning? I don't think I had radiation poisoning. I don't know. If, I mean, it's a matter of semantics. I mean, I think I'd been burned by something. And radiation being burned so evenly on every, every millimeter of my body makes me think I was burned by some ambient force. So yeah, that could have been radiation. The other thing I want to mention was this, was inside the ship, I have some memories from inside the ship. And there are a handful of those that have haunted me for 40 years. My children didn't know the story. My wife and I kept it between us. They knew that dad, every once or maybe twice a year, would have a screaming nightmare, but they never never knew the story. And there's a handful of memories from being inside the ship. And one of those memories was how, number one, how big the inside of the ship was. Now I don't know if I if we went on the triangle and then they took us somewhere else because the inside of this thing was bigger than you could account for by the dimensions from looking at it from, now, from the outside. I mean, it was like a football stadium on the inside. It makes no sense to me. The other thing was the bright lights, That the inside of this thing was just incredibly well lit. You know, you see the uh, portrayal of the grays with the big black eyes. Those gotta be shades because they keep the lights turned on. I mean, and the light inside this thing There wasn't a light fixture anywhere. The light just radiated from the walls and the ceiling and the floor. Just bizarre, but yeah, I attribute that to my burns.
0: Hi there, I'm Bob from Sedona. And when I'm not having my aura buffed or wrangling a vortex, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to Scott and Forrest.
1: So rewinding just a little bit, there's part of your story that you did not mention just now when you recounted being in the field in 77, and that was the sort of initial kind of reckless hike you and Toby took. We did. That was before you guys settled down and cooked the hot dogs and everything. That was like right when you got
2: there, right? Right. We got there and we got out and Toby wanted to, you know, he was was kind of a by the book kind of guy and I was a little more impetuous or a little more, uh, and I wanted to go take a hike. Cause you know, I just driven six hours plus and I wanted to get out and stretch my legs. And he's like, no, we got to set up camp. And I didn't listen to him and I should have because we went on this hike and it was a beautiful day and the scenery was phenomenal. And we came to this um, outcropping of rock and there was a canopy of uh, shade from a tree and we climbed up on top and the view was phenomenal and the rock was cool to the touch. And we brought a gallon jug of water with us. And I recall I laid back on this rock and it was cool and it was comfortable. And Toby laid down too. And neither one of us thought the other would fall asleep. And I don't understand that to this day. I mean, I was tired from the drive. But man, when you're 22 years old, you don't take a nap in the middle of the afternoon. You know, today I'd give anything to take a nap in the middle of the
1: afternoon. (laughs) I'm planning on one today. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. But, you know, no, it made no sense. Both of us fell asleep. And I think there's, there's more to that than I'll ever know. I wish I know the whole of that story.
1: Well, and I want to come back to that because there were some details about that hike that it seemed like came up in the interrogation that you had later. But for our listeners, for the sake of them right now, you guys fell asleep long enough that it was there was a bit of a panic about getting back before dark and making camp, right?
2: It was, it's hard to judge distance because the terrain was uh, rocky and, and hilly. And uh, I don't know how much ground we covered, but it felt like about a four mile hike, I would guess. When Toby woke me up, he was kicking me and screaming, get up, get up. Get up. And before I even opened my eyes, I knew what had happened. I knew that, and I was just glad to see that it wasn't completely dark. I mean, the sun was setting and I, I felt like we could find our way back as long as we didn't make a misstep or a wrong turn somewhere. And I know I wanted to go in one direction and Toby said, no, this is the right way. And I deferred to him because of his sense of direction. And uh, we got back, we crested the open end of the horseshoe and climbed over this rocky part of this uh, thing. And we saw our car and we sprinted the last hundred yards or whatever it was to the car. And that's when we went into this frantic mode to put together camp. and. Uh, I had left, I had a really nice camping lantern with a gallon of fuel and a hatchet that my neighbor lent to me. And I left it in my garage.
1: When you woke up and you re- returned to camp, you at that time, in the moment, did you have any sense that anything had happened to you guys while you were sleeping, or was there any sort of trauma like you had after the main incident?
2: No, no, I, I don't think we were hurt at all. Uh, we were a bit panicked because the idea of spending the night in the woods. I knew it would be survivable, but I knew it would be very uncomfortable. Plus, you guys are real green,
1: camping-wise,
2: right? Yeah, Yeah. we don't know what we're doing. Right.
1: (laughs) Okay, so then coming back to the leaves being real still and that stillness, and it's interesting, you talk about that calm, which is literally the calm before the storm, in your case. Something I experienced in, and I think I've mentioned this on our show before, but my first two years of college, I went to school in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I was there the night... 21 or 23 tornadoes touched down and the weather service completely missed it. Like it wasn't on the news that it might happen, nothing. And I was up late studying for exams and it was uh, close to midnight, but I went outside just to get some air. Cause I also lived with three other people in a very small apartment. So that was annoying. And so I come outside and there was no crickets, there were no birds, there was no nothing. And that was cause they all knew the tornadoes were coming. But I remember thinking, yeah. God, this is weird. And you know, an hour or two later, one of my friends called his house had been destroyed. So That's the only time I've experienced something like that. But I feel like it seems like in your incident where you were focused on the stillness of everything, do you ever wonder if at that moment or at some point you transitioned out of reality into an altered state of existence or reality where your perception was being controlled by an outside force as opposed to what was really happening in nature around you?
2: I absolutely do. You know, I I wrote a couple pages on that. And when I read it, it made me sound crazy. So I didn't include it. Left it out of the book. Uh I left it out intentionally. But yeah, that's exactly, you're reading my mind. That's exactly the, the feeling that I had is when that leaf didn't move, I'm looking at this tree and I'm thinking, am I looking at a tree? Am I looking at reality or am I looking at a prop? Right. And I had the thought then, and I don't know where it came from, but I had the thought that there maybe was a shift in the dimension, maybe by a plank length of difference. I went from one reality to another. I was in a different, and that ties in with this thing not being seen, not being reported.
1: Yes, it does. And it also suggests possibly, you know, a manipulation of space and time and and what component of it you're being exposed to as they exert control over you. Because, and, and this is my other question, when you when Toby first saw the lights, And you said they were at a distance and it took 15 minutes for them to get to you. And then the craft became larger and larger, et cetera. It seemed to you, even at that great distance, though, that they were already focused on you as far away as they were initially.
2: Yes. From the time when they rotated, when they rotated like they were on an axis, I knew we weren't just looking and observing something. I knew we were somehow involved in this. You know, we were going to be a part of something. And this thing, whatever it was sitting on the horizon, was going to be part and parcel of whatever we're going to experience but i knew from that point forward that it was headed towards us and toby even said so toby said that the, it's that things headed right, right right toward us a
1: couple of questions about the craft itself which you have provided a, an amazing drawing of you have in your book as well that's very interesting you always describe it as like a five story medical building which i'm you know in my mind i'm envisioning 60s architecture for you from an architectural standpoint it was a blocky Triangle essentially is what you're saying. Yes, in terms of this medical building vibe that it had.
2: Yeah, yeah. From the outside, blocky, almost Stalin-esque, and it's matte black, and uh it was just functional. You know, yeah. And the inside, if my memory was of the inside of this craft, as I say, I, I can't be certain of that just because of the difference in, in size. But there were some strange things that I saw, and that was a. Uh, I have only one memory of an image, you know, they didn't have the art collection up. I mean, there was nothing inside. It was just, everything was just purely functional. And there were, uh, there was a lot of activity going on. There were the, the gray things were walking around all over the place and, uh, on the wall engraved in a panel of the wall was a simple engraved into metal. Everything was either like white porcelain or stainless steel. And there was engraved an image in this that was like a tree, with uh, twigs going out and then the twigs branching out into twos, a fractal, if you will. Uh And that image was engraved into the side of the wall. And I wondered, is that purely decorative or what does it mean? What's its meaning?
1: Is it a representation of a
0: genealogical tree? Yeah. Did you ever find out what it meant? No. Here's a common thing that you describe that a lot of craft descriptions have, and that's changing Brightly colored lights of various colors, uh, dark blues and greens and oranges. Yes. And sometimes reds and whites. Did you ever find out why a craft would need to or why it did that? Why does it change colors?
2: I don't, but I have a theory. I mean...
0: Let's hear it, yeah.
2: Yes, I mean, it's uh, purely subjective. But the spectrum of light, of visible light, is extremely broad band. And we we see things only, only in a very narrow band. I mean, I think that they view the world probably in a much broader span of that spectrum of light. I think they can see perhaps see x-rays or maybe see radio waves or something. But light is definitely an important part of whatever they do.
1: I wonder, too, if, you know, part of the reason that you describe it as a medical building is because of what happened to you there. Yeah. I also wonder if what it looked like going back to that sense of reality is related to what they needed it to be, or more to what they thought it should present to you as, or, you know, controlling the, what they're delivering to your senses in terms of its visual appearance. Because it's interesting, like you say, about it being so much larger inside than it was on the outside, and it does make you wonder about perception. And and this speculation on our part, I can say, comes from all the topics we've covered that have dealt with people having experiences that seem to be rooted in an alternate reality that seems like it's less about the factual instance of what you're observing or participating in and more about what the thing projecting that image wants you to see or feel.
2: I can't think of a single instance where I could say that something was manipulated in a way to make it more palatable or less frightening. Right. I don't think they did that at all. As a matter of fact, I think that they were 100% open And uh, I think I saw the real face.
1: That's wow. Okay, so that's really fascinating. I want to get on to the interrogation, because that for me, that was the most fascinating part of your book or one of them, you know, the aftermath of this particular incident. But before I do, I wanted to quickly ask you, do you know or have you looked on Google Earth at where this was, where it happened? Is it still there? Have you been back?
2: I've never been back. I've never had the, the urge to go back. I've never been camping since. While I was in Phoenix at their event just a couple of weeks ago, a gentleman walked over to me, and he had a, a map from Google Earth. It's still there. He showed it to me. You could see uh, it wasn't really a triangle. It was more like a trapezoidal-shaped area where it looked like it, the land had been cleared. And there were some rocks or boulders-like stuff at the end. And if you go to Google Earth and you can find that image that he showed me, uh, that should be a re- pretty fair representation where we were. I mean, I don't understand because so much time has passed, there should be mature trees there. And I don't understand that. So I was shocked whenever he showed me this, this thing. And I said, because I was surprised, I was thinking, well, you know, it's going to be overgrown forest there now for sure, but evidently not.
1: It hasn't changed.
2: Not from what he showed me.
1: Okay, so let's move forward in time a little bit to your interrogation. I have questions about this. First of all, with the OSI guys, are you have you changed everyone's names? I'm kind of presuming you have. Or I did. Yeah. I have, okay. Of course. That must be hard, especially when talking about a friend to retain the fake name. So I it is. I'm very that. careful about that. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't blame you. Are, are you still in touch? Speaking of which, with Toby's wife
2: or not? My wife had contact with her in the mid 80s. She had married an over the road driver, divorced Toby, and uh, she told us that Toby was not doing well, that he'd been discharged from the Air Force, and drinking was an issue. He never recovered from this event. I'm not sure I fully recovered. And I can understand that in a way because for so long after this event, and sometimes to this day, it's hard to lay down and close my eyes. I have to have the door to the bedroom open or I can't sleep. Uh, I have to have the the curtains drawn. You know, I keep a gun by my bed with a high power flashlight, which demands constant vigilance with small children sure. having access to my house. But just during the night while I sleep, I lock it in the safe as soon as I get up. But I I'm not comfortable. I feel defenseless. And that's ludicrous. That's crazy. There's there's no way that a handgun would be of any defense to me if these guys wanted to take me again.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're able to, one of the things you talked about in the interrogation was that you were restrained without restraints. Correct. There's some common ground here. You refer to it, but not by name in your book. I believe you're referring to communion. Yes. When you mentioned the book that you saw, the gray on the cover that sent you into a tailspin. Yes. This took place with the, again, it was initiated by the OSI officers who took you to a location on the base right? For that? Yes. Okay. So it was right there.
2: This is about somewhere around five weeks after my discharge from the hospital. Right. I was uh, told by the uh, squadron commander that the OSI was sending a car to pick me up. So I ran to the front door and uh, stopped by the bathroom and uh, checked my appearance. I got to the front door and uh, a blue uh, security police car was pulled up for me. And a uh, senior airman, a guy with two stripes, got out, Sergeant Lovelace, and I said, yes, and of course I got a name tag on. you can see who I am. He opened the door for me and I got in the back of the police car. I'd never been in a police car before. I thought it was I, you know I noted that there was no, there were no locks, no window crank, no way to open the door, that the floor was um, like this uh, metal with lanyards, I guess for shuffling prisoners or something. But that was a frightening experience in itself. And he drove us a a mile or so to the OSI headquarters. And we had to go through a series of doors. And they were the double lock kind of thing where they see him, they buzz him, and he opens the door and I follow him. Door shuts in back of us. Then when that door closes, we buzz through the next set of doors. And he took me down a hallway. On either side of the hallway, there were interrogation rooms. And they were marked like A, B, C, D, E. I may have been in room E, I don't remember. But he opened the door and he said, someone will be with you shortly. And I went in and the room was a little bit bigger than my bathroom. It was big enough to hold a desk in the middle, a gray military style desk from the 50s with a padded plastic chair on rollers. And there were, in three corners of the room, there were these uh, yellow fiberglass Chairs that were ubiquitous in the sixties and seventies. They were fiberglass and they were molded.
1: Yes, and they had the metal legs with the on the bottom the swiveling feet. That's it. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> I remember it. these chairs.
2: One in each corner. Well, there were three of those plus the the comfortable chair. I called it. And I uh, grabbed a comfortable chair and I sat down at the desk. And I noted that there was a clock above the door, and it was a General Electric schoolhouse clock. And to my left, there was a um, two foot by two foot square mirror that had been boxed in, framed in with wood. So my guess was that it had to be a two way affair. I mean, besides who's going to be worried about grooming themselves in an interrogation room. Right, (laughs) right. right. (laughs) I'm sitting there and it's nine o'clock. It's 10 o'clock. It's 11 o'clock. Eventually, it's almost noon. And the two agents, the two OSI agents came into the room. They're talking amongst themselves and they're just completely ignoring me other than to kick me out of the comfortable chair and put me in a a fiberglass chair. And um, Special Agent Gregory says, uh, well, you know you're gonna be hypnotized today, son. Are you ready? I said, sir, I'm gonna be what? He said, you're gonna be hypnotized. So son, it's gonna help us get to the truth. Make sure you're not lying to us. You wouldn't lie to us, would you, son? I'm like, no, sir. Everything I've told you is true. And he said, well, then you shouldn't mind a little hypnosis here. It'll help you relax. He says, I have people tell me that they enjoy the process. And I said, sir, but why? And, I, and, I, and I'm starting to object. And that's when he switches gears and turns on this tough guy affect, facially, and he pulls a piece of paper out of his briefcase. And of those papers that I laid out, that were laid out in front of me when I was in the hospital that I signed without reading. One of them was my consent to hypnotic regression. And it had something to the effect of with chemical enhancement, chemical something or other. It was at the top at the heading. And he slams it down on the table in front of me. And he points to it and he says, is that not your signature, son? I said, yes, sir. But I still don't understand why. And he points again to my signature and says, That's all the why I need, son. I sat back and weighing my options, trying to decide what to do. And there's a tap at the door. And there's this major that was there. And they let him into the room. And he wore standard issue blue pants, the light blue shirt with the gold oak leaves on his collar. He walked in and he completely ignored me for a couple of minutes. And he's talking to the agents about, it was either about fishing or, or golf. One of the two, I don't remember which, because there were two conversations, but finally he turns his attention to me and he holds his hand out to me and says, it's so good to finally meet you, Sergeant Lovelace. How are you? And I said, fine, sir. And I shook his hand. And I remember thinking that this guy, he carries himself more like a priest or a therapist than a military officer. He's just out of character. He said, Sergeant Lovelace, now, he's pulled up, but he kicked Gregory out of the comfortable chair and, and commandeered it, and it was on rollers, of course, and he rolls it right over, right next to me into my personal space. He said, you know, he, he started making small talk, and he asked me, he said, you know, you're from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, and he starts rattling off some landmarks, and he nods, and he's smiling politely. I'm thinking, you know, This goes on for a few minutes, and I'm actually, for an instant, starting to feel comfortable with the guy. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute, you know, I'm just not this interesting. Something's wrong here. And my antenna goes up, and I feel like, you know, something's not right. And he must have picked up on that, because he switched gears, too. And he says, Sergeant Lovelace, for purposes of today's little exercise, would you call me Brad? That is my name. And I said, yes, sir. And he says, "Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah! Uh. don't you mean, yes, Brad? And it was just a creepy exchange. And he, he asked me, he says, for purposes, Sergeant Lovelace, of today's little exercise, may I call you Terry? That is your name. And I said, yes, Brad. And he says, Terry, this is important. Do you trust me? And I thought, do I trust you? What kind of question is that to ask a stranger? I lied to him, and I said, Sure, I, I, I trust you, Brad. And it was really uncomfortable talking to a commissioned officer this way. It just was not, it's not normal. And he said, um, I've read the statements that you've given these agents. And uh, I was just wondering if uh, there's anything you'd like to tell me. If there is, I can ask these two agents to leave. And the two agents stood up like on cue. And he says... I'll ask them to leave, and you and I, we can have ourselves a little discussion just between ourselves. And Terry, if there's anything you need to change in your statement, we can fix it now, and it'll be okay. Should I ask these gentlemen to step out? What do you say? Mm-hmm. And I said, Sir, I've told the agents everything. And I said, Sir, I just I don't understand why the hypnosis. And he says, Oh well, you know, it's just a normal tool. It, it helps you to relax. And he stops mid-sentence and he says, you're not thinking about withdrawing your consent, are you? And I said, well, sir, uh, yes, do I have that option? Can I do that? And he says, why, sure. And he turned the floor back over to the investigator, Special Agent Gregory, and he says, yeah. And he pulls out this manila folder and he says, I can tear these papers up right now, Terry, and you can go home. And we'll just see you at a court-martial. Is that what you want? That's what we'll do. And I wanted to say, court-martial for what? Nobody has told me what I've done wrong. I have no reason, no understanding why I'm here. But again, I was, at this point, I'm intimidated. I have the mistaken belief that I had no rights, that if I if I asked for a, a lawyer to be present, that that would in some way make me look guilty. In retrospect, it could have meant sometime incarcerated awaiting trial, and who knows how that could have went. And like I say, I don't even know what I was accused of. I don't trust these people. So in my mind, I remember thinking the words, I'm going to roll with it. And that's what I did. I I said, no, sir, I'll cooperate. And uh, he started asking me questions. He gave me a drug. And I found out afterwards, when I was at at an event, contacting the desert, and there was a big crowd of people around the pool. It was hard to maneuver around. And this guy who looks like he's in his 80s, walked up and said, I enjoyed your talk this morning oh, by the way, I know the man that interrogated you. (laughs) And I'm like, wait, wait. And he melds into this group of people and I never can find him. I would have tackled him. I mean, if there hadn't been a crowd of people there, but I'm in this crowd of people. So I don't know if he was just some crazy old guy or what, but I don't know. I've been contacted by other people who independent of one another have told me that the drug that they administer is called sodium ametol, and it's fast acting and short acting. But it'll put you in kind of that twilight zone. And it's often used in conjunction with hypnosis. And it helps you relax and helps you get under faster.
0: Yeah, a lot of people have heard of sodium pentothal, I think, and equate that with quote unquote truth serum. But sodium amitol seems to, as you said and described, It sedates you, but it also brings forth memories that you hadn't thought about in the way that maybe you were thinking about a a name of somebody or a song and you couldn't, it was on the tip of your tongue, but you couldn't remember. And this was like, boom, it just brought it forth.
2: That's exactly right. That is precisely it. And I think I use the analogy in my book because I think it's a good one. If I went back to my high school yearbook and I saw a photograph, I'd say, oh, I can remember that. But independently ask, you know, on page 78, there's a photograph. Can you tell us what it is? I would have a clue, you know, and I probably in my wildest imagination couldn't call up that image, but once I see it, I recognize it, and this, it blew me away because um, he put me under, and when I say he put me under, he gave me the sodium ametal, and then he took me through the hypnosis process, and that was descending uh, stairwell and uh, relaxing muscles, you know, relaxing your arm, relax your legs. And he had this voice, he had this voice like a radio announcer, just smooth and easy to listen to. I'm thinking that I'm going to, because I'd been taking psych classes in the evening, and I knew that nobody could be hypnotized without their consent. You know, I mean, if if they could give me sodium ametol and uh, control my mind, I mean, there'd be no need for forts or, you know. So I I knew that I could resist the um, hypnosis, but I wasn't sure about the drug. And sure enough, the drug had an unexpected reaction. That was after he administered it. I felt this flush, very pleasant flush. And he said, uh, now Terry, you, you and Toby went on a little camping trip a couple of weeks ago. Remember that? And I said, yes, Brad. And he said, and you saw some funny lights in this guy. Is that right? And I said, yes, Brad. And he said, no, I don't want you to tell me what you think. I want you to tell me what you see. What are you seeing? And he Impress that over and over again. Tell me what you see, Terry, in your mind's eye, tell me what you see. And he says, But they weren't stars at all, were they, Terry? And I said, No, Brad, they weren't. And he said, Who were they? And I said, They were the star people. And I thought, My God, that came out of my mouth. And then I thought, Yeah, they did. And then it came forward that I did know them, that I had seen them before, that I knew them from my childhood. And he asked me questions about the inside of the ship. He asked, uh, of course, at the very end, uh, he asked the important questions. were like, did you have your camera? Did you take any photographs? Did Toby take any photographs? Do you have anything hidden anywhere? Do you have you secreted anything? There was a lot of back and forth that I kind of cut to the chase in my book. Because he was very thorough at oral examination. He took me through. He says, uh and you know them, Terry? And I said, yeah, I know them from when I was a child. They used to come and take me. And this is a revelation to me. And it's like, that's suddenly part of my conscious thought, and memory. And he wanted me to answer questions about the inside of the ship, what I saw. And uh, as he's walking me through this, I left the campsite with only a few flashes, mentally, of what had happened to us. And I still don't have a seamless narrative. But because of the sodium amytol, because of this faulty hypnosis, it may have been successful hypnosis. I don't know. I don't think so.
1: That was one of the things from your book that I didn't fully grasp until I got to the end of your interrogation section was that you talked about descending the steps and he asked you to, and he's counting backwards as he's putting you under, and he asked you to reach up and pull the light, turn this light off, the imaginary light, right? and. There was a point at which you decided or you thought that maybe whatever he was doing wasn't working properly because when he asked you to do that, you did not feel like it was an automated action to pull that chain, that you were in control of your arm when you reached up to turn the light off. Am I interpreting that correctly?
2: You're interpreting it 100% correct. I waited because I was curious, actually. If it was just going to go up by itself. Yeah. Is my arm oh, going to move by itself? Yeah. And it didn't.
1: So at that point, that's when you latched onto the idea that the hypnosis or the hypnotic state you were in was not at 100% necessarily. Yes. Okay.
2: And I was doing my best to, I tried to divide my mind, if that makes sense. I tried to, you know, you like trying to read a book while your kids are watching the television. Yeah. You know?
1: Daily experience for me, actually. <laughs> yeah, I understand.
2: So what I did was I, I'm trying to look as compliant as I can. So while he's asking me to relax my muscles I'm secretively trying to tense them. And uh, when he's asking me to count backwards, I'm counting forward on the number line. And then I had the idea to play Beatle music in my head. And I started with the uh, Norwegian Wood and uh, went through the lyrics. And I'm trying to focus on that because that's something that I could keep my mind focused on and still trying to, to give a little part of my mind to him. That worked somewhat, but he did pull up memories that I would not know today. And you know, I just wonder, given what had happened to my friend, had I not had this hypnosis session and had these things not been brought forth to my memory, would they have manifested in some unhealthy way down the line? There's maybe alcoholism or neurosis or some type of mental illness. As a result of this experience
1: while you're on that just briefly i think another important detail for our listeners to know about is the medication you were sent home with from the hospital that toby took all of and you did not
0: yeah one question i had you later found out that serum came from wright patterson or was it the pills that they gave you came from wright patterson the pills did
2: my friend the nurse who was very sympathetic to me as sympathetic as she could be but as i stated in the book You know, she had two silver bars on her collar and I had four stripes at the time. So, I mean, there was that divide. I felt like she tried to be as helpful to me as she could be because she knew there was a lot going on. She had to know. And I asked her, I said, Deb, what are these pills? And she says, I don't know. They're not from our formulary. They're from Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And I had these capsules and my God, I wish I'd saved just one of them. Ah, and I had at home a physician's desk reference that had a photograph of every single pill manufactured and in formulary in the United States. And this capsule wasn't listed anywhere. I went page by page by page. So that meant that whatever was inside these capsules, they were specially made by a pharmacist. I don't know what they were, but I was to take a capsule three times a day with meals. And they sent a night nurse by, who I thought would be coming by to maybe check my blood pressure, say, how you feeling? You know, but it wasn't that at all. This nurse came by, and number one, I didn't recognize her. I knew everybody in the hospital squadron. She had no insignia of rank, she had no name tag. And she would come in the evening after dinner and would do a pill count to see if I'd taken my allotted medicine for the day. And she did that every day. And uh, I was loopy. I was like just out of it. I mean, I, and my wife said, You are really not with it. And she suggested, she says, you know, I think these pills are making you stupid exact words. And I said, you know what? I have no point of reference here, but I'm going to take your word for it. And we decided that I'd flush my pills down with my meal. So I always have the right count in the pill bottle whenever she came by to do the pill count, just in case she ever came by in the morning instead of the evening. But she didn't. She never varied. She always came by after dinner and uh, never once asked me how I felt, took my blood pressure was just all business. Did a pill count? See you tomorrow, then out the door. Right. And I wonder, I took those for two, you know, I was I was not myself for a couple of weeks. And I, I blamed that on a couple of days of taking those pills. If Toby had taken all 14 days of those, I just wonder how much of that would have eaten away at his mind. I mean, I, I think there could have been serious damage done to you, it was poison, whatever it was. It wasn't for my benefit.
1: Sure. Coming back to the interrogation, he's asked you to walk down the stairs, he asked you to turn the reach up and turn off the imaginary lamp, which you did, you pantomimed doing that, and you know, that confirmed for you internally that you were somewhat in control of your faculties in spite of the fact that he had put you under. But additionally, you also said in your book that there are gaps In the interrogation that you couldn't remember. There were points at which you think you may have discussed things you don't know what they were or or what happened during those gaps. But on the other hand, there were sections where you felt in control. And when you came out the end of the process, there were things you remembered that you had no idea were in your mind about the actual experience.
2: That's exactly right. Because when he took me, I was seated in this posture that I assumed I had no reference time because I didn't want to dare open my eyes and look up at the clock. And uh, I had no point of reference. And I honestly thought an hour had passed and it was four.
1: Here's what I think this might be as good a point as any to talk about this. But some of the more frightening details of the experience for you and Toby that relate to the tent and the meadow experience came out while this gentleman was interrogating you. Uh, And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more specifically about what you recalled about the experience of actually being on the ship, what you saw there and what happened as much as you're comfortable with.
2: Yes, yes. And as far as the experience inside the tent, we pretty much covered most of what's cogent there. The experience of being inside the ship, those were images that I had only mental flashes of until this process. And um, one of the memories... That sticks with me today and is vivid in my mind is that we were nude, and I had my clothing in my hand, and so did toby and he was standing next to me, and the only thing that I could move was my eyes, and I'm darting my eyes all over, I'm trying to like visually drink in every single inch of this thing, and I'm thinking this is important, I want to remember this, and that's why I wanted to resist the hypnosis so badly was that I thought you know. I own these memories. I'm going to keep them for better or worse. Irrespective of damage to my mental health, I'm going to keep these memories. And, and I did.
0: Hi, I'm Jasmine. And when I'm not out hunting the beast of Bodmin Moor, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. And now let's get back to the show.
2: Inside the Craft. I'm standing there, holding my clothing in my arms, and I heard a woman screaming. And you know, screams come in different varieties. I mean, somebody jumps out and grabs you and and says, boo, and you scream. There's that scream of someone who's startled, and then there's a particular scream of someone, it's a sharp, piercing scream as a reaction to pain. And that was my thought when I heard this woman screaming, is my God, they're hurting her. And I heard her screaming, and I could see to my right, there were some other human beings there. And I don't recall how many, but more than a dozen, could have been 50.
1: All in your, in your similar situation.
2: All in more, but you know what, we were, we were segregated. We were off to one side, and these people were off to our right, so we weren't a party of them. For some reason, we were kept separate. And I could see these people, and they were in the same situation we were. And then as they were holding their clothes in their hands, and I could see that it was a mix of men, women, and children, and they were all darting their eyes all over, and they were all crying.
0: Do you think you were any more conscious than the rest of them, or were you all in a similar state of being awake, being conscious, but being paralyzed in a way?
2: I think we were all in the same situation. I do. I think we were all frozen, I call it, and all I could move was my eyes. And uh, it's interesting, I talked to Calvin Parker, and when he was abducted in Louisiana back in 1973, he had the same experience. All he could move was his eyes. He also used the same word that I did, and that was frozen, that he was frozen. And I remember there were some other humans on board that wore military uniforms. They wore tan-colored flight suits. And they had orange insignias on their shoulder and on their stripes where their name would be on one side and a branch of service on the other. And they had on military issue combat boots. They were all about our age, 22 or younger, with military-style short haircuts. And uh, I think they were members of the ship. They were together in a pack. I never heard them talk. I never heard them say a word. But one went over and did a motion like this and slid a panel open and was doing something in this panel. And that's what makes me think these people, whoever they were, were humans, or at least they certainly looked human, and they were crew members. But they stayed together as a little bit of a group and moved around as a group. There were the gray guys who were all over the place. And I have a theory about those things too. I, think, I don't think those are living sentient beings. I think those are some kind of combination of nanotechnology and quantum programming and, and artificial intelligence and whatever else they need to put together what it appears to be a living, sentient being that follows commands. And I know this, they manhandled us and they were very strong.
1: Even though they didn't necessarily look strong?
2: They didn't. They didn't look strong at all. They were like children.
1: Yeah, because the other thing, when you posited that in your book, which was the idea of them being you know robots in a simplistic way, the other thing that occurred to me was that if you were in a situation where you can be controlled so easily, like completely paralyzed without restraints, that it could also be a species of beings that the other ones had come across and taken complete control of because they were mentally capable of doing that in a way. Or it could be, like you said, a combination of nanotechnology or programmable biological creature that in order to be controlled in much the same way that these things can communicate through mental telepathy. Maybe they are controlling the greys that way as well. It's the ultimate drone, in a way. Yes.
2: Yes. Yeah. That fits into the hive mentality. Right. 100%. How many different types
0: of beings did you see on the ship, not counting the humans, or what appeared to be humans?
2: I saw a total of three. There were the grey guys, obviously. Those were the most numerous. And they all seemed to be on a task. They all seemed to be moving with purpose, like they're going to do something, they're just kind of moving around. And I saw a a taller being that was not gray, that was about my height, about six foot, who was chalky, his complexion was chalky, it was not gray. His eyes were big or oversized, but they were not like you see in the movies. And they wrapped around their face, dots for nostrils, a slit for a mouth. And I recall there was one in particular that I was in within my field of vision because I'm limited by what I can see to how far I can move my eyes. And this guy seemed to be in control. It seemed like he was running the show. And I'm straining my eyes to the left to view him. And as I'm looking there, by chance, he turns his head and we locked eyes. And that was probably the most frightening aspect of being on the show. That to me was more frightening than when they put me on a table and, and that was frightening. Because what happened was when we locked eyes, immediately, this thing was in my head. It was a download or something, but it was in my head and it knew me, it knew my wife, it knew my, my secrets, my dreams. It knew everything about me. And all I got mirrored back from him was just raw intellect. And the analogy that I think is the best is that, you know, I pet my cat. My cat looks up at me with big eyes and mirrors back to me, trust and love. I felt like I was the cat. This guy was so far above me on the evolutionary ladder that uh, it was frightening. Was he
1: humanoid, though, overall? Like arms and legs and torso? And did he have clothes on?
2: Yes. Yes. He wore gray clothing. Gray boots, and I recall it had a V neck.
1: But if he'd have been on Earth, like walking around, people would have noticed that he was not human.
2: Yes, he would not fit into the crowd.
1: So I know that you speak at some of the cons, you're at one now, and you probably have a better knowledge than I do of the various types of aliens that people have described from the combinations of all the abduction experiences over the years and the decades. Does he fit into one of those categories, or is it a unique individual
2: for your experience? He fits into one of the categories. Which one would that be? I don't know what you call them. Humanoid, I guess. Okay. And there was a third entity there that I should mention, and that was the insectoid thing. Now, all the frightening things I witnessed, I would have thought that would have been the most frightening, but it wasn't. Uh, It was weird. It was just an odd experience. Because I remember I, I heard the woman screaming, and then there's a lapse. And then I heard Toby screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, no, no, no. And then the next thing I recall was I'm being levitated just from my feet straight up and onto this table. And I remember thinking that the table should be cold, but it's not, it's warm. And then I thought, oh my God, it's warm because there have been a a dozen bodies or more on this thing. And there was an insectoid thing. A lot of people have reported seeing this thing. A lot of people call them what I called them. I called them Dr. Bug. And it had a mantis head with two bulbous eyes with um, strands of fine hair, the the eyes were multi lensed You know how a fly's eyes have multiple lenses? And there were bits of hair that stuck out between the eyes.
1: Between the lenses.
2: The lenses, yes, the individual lenses. And it had uh, an insectoid type mouth. And I was screaming. And I remember that I would fill my lungs with air and I would scream as loud as I can. And I can't hear a thing, I can't hear anything. And that confuses me, so that makes me scream more. And then I realize that my screaming has annoyed Dr. Bug here. And this thing turns, because he's at my feet. They were doing something to my lower back. And I have uh, early onset of uh, degenerative spine disease that the VA graciously gave me 30% disability for. And uh, I'm screaming, and it turns this big bulbous head and gets down close to my head, and I could hear him clearly in my head, like any spoken word, without accent, but I heard him speak, and he was annoyed. And he says, why are you screaming? Stop screaming, you know we don't hurt you, you know we take you back, stop screaming. And he had this green colored digit and I always see him in my mind's eye with a lab coat on, but I don't think that's—I think that's something my mind conjured up. And he reached over and he tapped me on the forehead, and I was gone, and I was out.
0: This mantis creature—he didn't seem to be the one in total charge, or as you say, in control of the whole show. Was he more of a medical entity, or where? What do you think that his uh, his station was?
2: My opinion has softened over the years in the passage of time. And initially, I wanted nothing more than to go back and shoot these things. And like I said, that softened with time. And uh, I honestly think that if I had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Bug and have a cup of coffee or uh, whatever, I think he'd say, you know, hey, man, just doing my job. You know, I, I didn't get any malice. And maybe that's why I didn't have this great fear of him. I had the greater fear of the guy that got in my head. That guy scared me. But yeah, Vacupog, I don't think was malicious, because were he malicious, he could have killed me easily.
0: So his role was kind of somewhere in between. He's like the medical officer of the ship, but a different species. Yes. It's often said by a lot of experiencers that they don't seem to understand us on a human emotional level, or really, maybe they're just indifferent. But was it like he couldn't understand that you're actually in a lot of pain, that he's actually hurting people, even though, as you said in the book, that their thinking is that you're not going to remember this, so why are you you complaining? But they're not really understanding that they're causing a lot of trauma and pain.
1: It makes it okay because we're going to erase your memory of it, so just don't worry about whatever's happening right now.
2: i said those exact words over the years. I've said, I had that thought and said those words before. If someone takes you and hurts you and then erases all of your memory, does it make it okay? Well, of course, no, it doesn't make it okay. Do they understand that we have pain? Yeah, I think they do. I mean they're advanced beings. I have a four-year-old grandson. I mean, if he accidentally hurts our cat, he knows he did it and he's sorry. And he can perceive at age four that other things have feelings and can feel pain. And and, uh, so surely this thing knew that it was hurting.
0: Well, one curious thing that I got from the description is that you remember crying out, hey, I don't think I've been anesthetized. And they didn't really seem to care or understand that. It's like, well, we're just going to do this anyway, even though with our technology, we could easily anesthetize you. Sure, yeah. It just wasn't a consideration for them.
2: There was no response to me. And that's why I kept screaming and I couldn't hear my verbal, the the words that were coming out of my mouth, I couldn't hear with my ears. And I don't know why, because when the other people were screaming, I could sure hear them. But yeah, you know what? I think they're just purpose-driven. I think that pain is just to them an inconvenience. And like I said earlier, if they erase the memory, doesn't it make it okay? So I don't know.
1: So that gets into a whole philosophical debate about the ethics and morality of these things. And which begs the next question, in as much as you're comfortable with talking about it or elaborating on it, what do you think their goal was?
2: I think we were lab rats. I think I said that in the book. I think we were lab rats. You know, it it didn't hit me until 2012 when they discovered this thing in my knee, but they tagged me, you know, I I always tagged. I mean, like, you know, like you do a lion on a Serengeti plane, you know, you anesthetize it, it wakes up with a headache and moves on and, uh, you know, maybe thinks it had a bad dream. And the fact that they followed me all my life, my first memory of a flying saucer, I only had two. One happened when I was eight and the other when I was 11. And uh, if I got time, I'll tell those briefly. And that was, I was playing with a bow and arrow in my backyard. And I saw this elliptical shadow move across my feet. And I looked up and there was this big, beautiful flying saucer. It looked like highly polished aluminum. It was unsteady in the breeze. It kind of um, shook a little bit. wobbled would be the better word. And I remember I woke up. I shouldn't say I woke up. In my mind, I remember thinking, if I lie down on my back and look straight up, I can get a better view of this thing. Well, you know, in retrospect, that doesn't make any sense. Lorian Fenton told me, she says, well, I've talked to a 100 or more experiencers, and it's a very common experience as you wake up on the ground, your mind fills in the blanks of how you got there. So I strain my mind as much as I can, and I can't recall lying on the ground, getting down on the ground. So I don't know how I got there.
1: There's just this compliance that happens Yes, when they're around.
2: They're in control. You know, I wonder how many people out there have had this experience and have had their memory wiped successfully and go on with their lives without having any, any knowledge that it's ever happened to them. Right. Because there's a body of people out there that, you know, the UFO topic shouldn't be such a divisive topic, but in some people it triggers anger. And they're like that's stupidity, and they, and they 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 kind of go off the deep end whenever you bring the topic up. And uh, I often wonder though the the people that resist the loudest and complain the loudest, maybe they're uh, unwitting victims themselves.
1: What would you say to folks that would look at your story and say, "Well, this is clearly an overlay for him for some other traumatic." mundane terrestrial experience, although evil, dark, something horrible happened to you, and that you're covering that by way of self-preservation, consciously or subconsciously, with all of the construct of your experience to protect yourself from the reality of what happened on Earth?
2: Sure. It's a valid question. And this underscores why the Air Force thought it was so important that Toby and I be separated, because we validated for one another what had happened to us, you know, Granted, we never got an opportunity to sit down and say, but when I went and saw Toby and he looked up at me and he said, it happened, didn't it? I knew exactly what he meant. And there's no confusion. We, we had the same experience. And I, I'd say that, you know, if this is an overlay for some other traumatic event in my life, I don't have an event to tie it to. This is the most traumatic event of my life. 1977. As a matter of fact, I tend to measure my life in pre 1977 and post 1977. It was almost um, well, the biggest event in my life. I can't think of anything that tops it.
0: As is really common with a lot of experiencers, this goes back to childhood and it's not just the one time or at least the one time that they can remember. But these kinds of things have been happening throughout most people's lives. And years could pass in between, decades but it always seems to come back up until a certain point. Did you ever find out why you maybe have been chosen since childhood for this path of experiences?
2: I've never received an answer. I've never gotten any answers. I will say this, I won't go into it in depth, but uh, after I published this book, March 10th, 2018, all of a sudden the activity ramps up and my wife is like, Did they reroute the traffic for a helicopter, the traffic copter? Did they reroute that over our house or what? And again, it's another cliche, but it's it's true. And that is, people talk about the helicopters. I've got a breakdown. I've got 170 pictures of helicopters flying directly over my house of three varieties just a flat military. I forget the numeral thing for it. There's an Airbus, and and then there's an R 22 or R 44 by Roberts Helicopter Company. Oh, yeah. They fly over my house. I've since moved (laughs) back in June, but they would fly over my house and I'd go outside and take pictures of them because I was going to complain to the FAA and make a complaint, you know. And I did what I know how to do. I researched the law, and federal law says that if you're a licensed aircraft, specifically a helicopter, if you're a licensed uh, helicopter, you must display an N, alphabetical symbol N, like in Nancy followed by a sequence of numbers that identifies that particular aircraft and the letter in the notes that is being registered in the United States. None of the photographs, and I have photographs of plenty to show you, have aircraft that have any kind of markings on them whatsoever. And uh, I called the FAA. As a matter of fact, in the Dallas Morning News of March 29, 2019, there was an article, why are there so many military helicopters over Dallas? And then you read the first paragraph, and it said, why are there so many military helicopters over Garland? Garland is a suburb of Dallas, where I live. So I don't know what their purpose is. They would circle my house. They would appear mostly between 8 and 10 a.m. At that time of day, my field of view was limited to 180 degrees because of the morning sun and the, the trees in my front yard. That I had a view over the top of my house, but to my back, because of the height of the trees and the morning sun, I really didn't have a clear view. And uh, these helicopters would circle my house, do two or three laps, and then take off. And they've come as low as being able to see the pilot. And curiously, the pilot, I found this out through um, Dr. Bruce Solheim. He's a history professor and very gifted psychic medium, interesting guy. He was a helicopter pilot in the Army. And he said, it's interesting that the guy that you saw had in black flight gloves and had on a helmet, because air helicopter pilots don't wear helmets because they consider it to be an annoyance. Military helicopter pilots, by regulation, must wear a helmet. So these guys in these helicopters, and that's what the FAA told me out of Dallas, was, hey, you know, if there's no numbers in the thing, we can't track it for you. And if there's no numbers on the thing, they're military-owned, military or government-owned. End of conversation. What else is there to say?
1: So you're seeing civilian helicopters like the Roberts with pilots with helmets on? Yes. Okay.
2: And the Roberts is clearly civilian helicopter.
1: They go over my house in Los Angeles as well. Oh, the Robinson? The uh, It makes it kind of a right. fluttering Sorry, The noise. Robinson, yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe that's different. Maybe that's different. It is Robinson. Oh, it's Robinson. It has the tall, skinny thing, and then the rotor's up above it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. And it comes
2: in two varieties. It's the 22 and the 44, two-seater or four-seater. Yeah, and it has a bulbous kind of uh, cabin to it. Yeah, yeah very. The nicely ones appointed that go cockpit. over me,
1: they, they do not circle that, and I know they're part. That's Los Angeles. They're part of tours, and we get ones that circle too, but they're LAPD, and that's because people are running through the yards, breaking into houses. So <laughs> yeah. a, it's a different thing. But even that's unnerving.
0: Yeah. Well, the Robinson plant is based in Torrance, California, so there's a flight path there, but. I want to go back and ask you one more thing. Speaking of our government and military involvement with these extraterrestrials, and that on the ship you saw uniformed, obviously full humans in tan flight suits. Did you once say, I believe I heard in an interview with you and Linda Moulton Howe on Coast to Coast AM, that there was also a woman, possibly early 30s, Hispanic looking, with a ponytail?
2: Yes. Yes. There were maybe five guys, and there was this petite Latino woman, yeah. Yeah, hair and a ponytail. I can still see her in my mind's eye.
0: And you said the insignia on their shoulder, where your unit patch would be maybe, was a bright orange circle? Correct. And what do you think that that signified? I mean, usually, of course, with military patches, as you well know, there's a unit designation or a... It tells you what branch they are. Could you pick up any sense of what kind of branch or unit or you know division what military branch would this be do you think
2: i have no clue cuz i know of no branch of the united states military that wore that type of uniform back in the day i mean i'm not current on you know military uniforms today but i know back in 1977 there were no uniforms issued to my knowledge not in the united states that had that kind of that tan flight suits were common but in civilian pilots not so much in the military
0: well if these extraterrestrials are piloting an advanced ship. What was the purpose then of humans, do you think, as part of the crew? Why were they there? And then in more general terms, why is the U.S. government at least involved with them? Why are they in cahoots, so to speak?
2: You know, there's a bunch of theories about that. And I mean, all I can do is speculate. My guess, best guess is that maybe we've had a military space program since the 50s. I mean, who knows? You know, there's a book out. I think the author is Michael Sals. I haven't read the book, but it's called The America's Secret Space Program. And there was a um, another gentleman that was interviewed by Linda Moulton Hall, named uh, Tompkins, T-O-M-P-K-I-N-S, who uh, said that, oh yeah, that we had a secret space program going back since you know Eisenhower. So that's my best guess is that they were human. They were part of the U.S. government. It's like I said in the last chapter of my book: we're either working with them shoulder to shoulder human to alien toward a shared agenda, or we're engaged in some kind of quid pro quo where they have the right to seize citizens and maybe cattle in exchange for whatever. Or then the third possibility is that they come and go and do as they please. And we have no no say in the matter whatsoever. And I don't know the answer, but it's one of the three. Just one thing I think listeners should know that haven't read your
1: book yet, which we're of course going to be plugging here at the end of our interview and also we will provide links to in our show notes, is that in the course of your interrogation that you were talking about, there were many moments that you were able to take away that you remember during that partially hypnotic interrogation where it seemed like they were surprised and acknowledging that you had observed details that they knew already knew to be
2: accurate. That's right because I'll tell you why I I recognized its voice. It was the captain. And the captain blurted out an expletive whenever I said, you know, there were other humans on board there too, that I think were part of the crew. And, you know, that brings me to a point that I should interject here before I forget about it. And that is that people ask me, well, how come you have such a good memory? You know, how come you can recall all these details? And I want to clear that up because that is a valid question. I explained it in the book. And that is that I thought that I was maybe facing a court-martial And I thought it was wise to make a note of everything that would happen. And I kept two. I kept one in case they seized it. And I kept another one that I had hidden in the house that had as much as I could recall bits and flashes of my experiences on board the ship. And when they cut me loose at the end of the day, after my hypnosis session, the first thing I did when I got home was to pull out that notebook and make notes in it from what was added to my memory. My wife kept those notebooks. And... uh, I had an experience of missing time in 1987, and she dragged the notebooks back out of the closet, and uh, I added to them some more. But by 2016, I thought, surely we had been moved. We moved overseas. We've been everywhere. I thought, surely we can't have saved those. And she says, oh, yeah. My wife knew exactly where they were. They were in a storage locker in Michigan, and she flew up and retrieved them. And that's what I used uh, as the foundation for my book, was my my recollections recorded in real time of what happened to me.
0: You said that when you were being hypnotized, and not successfully, but you were in a still drowsy but conscious state enough that you were fighting it, so you could remember these things later, because as you said, they are your own memories, you own them. It seems that you said a few things, or a lot of things, that they already knew about, but that maybe a few things had surprised them do you recall anything that you think that they actually didn't know about and were maybe a little shocked to hear?
2: I think that they knew that there were humans on board, but I think that that was a big secret because that really caused a stir. As a matter of fact, Brad stopped the process to take me through this, you know, that's not a real memory, Terry. That didn't happen. That's not real. That never happened, you know, and make a point that he erased that memory. And as he's saying this, trying to make me forget, I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm not going to forget this, because somehow this is important, and I think it is important somehow. The other unanswered question that's haunted me for all the years is what happened to the other human beings on board? I mean, they kicked Toby and I off the ship, and uh, you know, we landed by my car, and I was semi-conscious, and he dragged us into the tent. But there were those other human beings on board that weren't crew members that were segregated from us but they were still in that ship when it went straight up and where did those people go
1: yeah and you also said which i thought was interesting too and i think you remembered this under the hypnosis that they brought you to the wrong location and then had to bring you over back to the tent because you were behind the car yeah so that was like some sort of weird clerical error and then on in addition to that your boots weren't laced all the way back up which was also proof for you that they had been off because you were very diligent about your boots
2: Yes, yes. You were taught, you know, in the military, you're taught to take care of your feet, because if you can't walk, you can't do your job. And, uh, you know, I would never have my socks on sideways and my shoes halfway stuff. It doesn't fit my character. I wouldn't have done it that way. I wouldn't do it that way today, you know. So that was validation for me, too. But that
0: seems to be a common description, though, from people who were abducted that— They're not perfect. They don't get everything right. They bungle some things. And I believe part of the story of Betty and Barney Hill was that her dress was on backwards when they redressed her. They don't get things quite right and they don't seem to really care, but they just don't really get it. Like they don't get us as humans. They don't. But one thing I wanted to say or ask about. In regards to possibly why humans were there and those people that were still left on the ship, and a possible motive of collaboration with our government is that one of the other types of beings you came in contact with throughout the years and on the ship, where you possibly got the most information from was from something you described as being maybe an alien-human hybrid, a very petite woman, or something that looked like a woman. Can you describe that relationship?
2: I can. And that goes back to probably four or five. And I recall being taken on board a ship. And I don't know if I included this in the book. I think I did. And I played with other children on board a ship. And we were in a round room with a gray padded floor. And there were always the same kids there. And we were given tasks to do with like geometric forms and stuff. And she was always really quick to praise us if we got it right. And one time she was pleased with what we were doing and she slid open a panel. It was a big panel and we could see outside and we must have been outside of the Earth's atmosphere because we could see the stars and they were beautiful. And I thought, I'm a kid. I'm thinking I'm in the planetarium, right? And the stars don't twinkle. And uh, that's one of my memories. I called that woman Sue when I was a kid because there was an Asian woman in our neighborhood that all us kids, we called her Sue. and. Her appearance is that of a petite Asian woman, except that her head is a bit bulbous. It's not shaped like a human skull, right? Her ears are just nubs, and she has just nostrils and a slit for her mouth. And at age four, I recall, communicated telepathically. And I even recall asking her, why can't we talk like this at home? And she said, because you're not ready. And you know, when um, this entity came and visited me, in 2017, shortly after I had started putting the book together. This is probably the most unbelievable part of my book. And I ask that you take it with a grain of salt and read it. And I accept my word this is what happened to the best of my memory. I almost left this chapter out of the book just because it's so fantastic, but it's the truth. And it seems to tie up a lot of loose ends. And that was I woke up in my living room in my normal chair that I prefer. And seated across from me was a petite Asian woman dressed in black, black shoes, black slacks, black blouse, uh, with extra long sleeves, hiding four long fingers. She had a, a red scarf tied around her neck, and her neck was pencil thin. And she had uh, a wig on. that was on askew. It was on kind of sideways. And from a side angle, she reminded me of Betty Rubble. I mean, you know, it's just the things that you think whenever you see this. Yeah. and. I'm not freaked out. I'm again, I recognize the feeling of sedation. So they're controlling my emotions again. I'm in seated in my living room. I'm thinking, God, I wish she'd take those glasses off. And she immediately took the glasses off. And I recognized her. And I said, You're Sue. And fired right back and said, You don't like my wig? And I apologetically, naturally, I'm but I'm not talking, I'm thinking it. I said, I'm sorry. I, I just meant. It looks fine. And we had this bizarre telepathic conversation, but I can tell you the reason that we humans as a species cannot communicate telepathically is we can't control our thought because I have this woman seated across from me and I'm thinking, my God, if she can read my thoughts and she acknowledged that she did, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I tick her off? You know, and then my next thought naturally, is what if I think about something that's inappropriate? Well, what happens? You're in fourth grade, and the teachers just don't think of elephants, right? That's all kids can think of for the next week is is elephants. I can tell you that every inappropriate thing you could possibly think of crossed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And I had no control over it whatsoever. In my mind, I'm projecting to her, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And she's like, you can keep some of your thoughts to yourself, Terry. I think she'd prefer it that way. You just have to try. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I kind of doubt it. I think she said that to placate me because she saw how upset that I was. But I had an odd feeling of affection for her that I don't completely understand. Uh, Not in a romantic way, but in a maternal way. And um, since I wrote the book, one of the memories that I've had, actually, and I don't know why I feel that I should mention it, probably because it's not in the book, probably because I think it has some importance. They used to take me when I was a real little kid and I was on board this ship. There was always this girl, about maybe 12, and we were much younger. And she helped Sue or Betty, all one and the same, with us with these geometric forms and the like. But this girl, she wore 1940s style, like a real short dress, like they gave girls to wear back in the day. Back in the nineteen forties, they're strictly out of date, not not fifties, not even sixties or and like patent leather black patent leather shoes with socks and I remember her distinctly because I was afraid of her. She had pigtails, and I was afraid of her, and the other kids were afraid of her too, and she never spoke, never yelled, never did anything other than she always just hung around. But I'd like to know her role because in retrospect, I question whether who was really in control there was it Sue? Or was it this other girl who took this form? I don't think I saw her as she really was, whatever it was.
0: I think your gut probably told you what was underneath that, as the same as the experience with your childhood monkey men, as you call them. Yes. But in kind of wrapping up this section here, did Sue slash Betty ever explain to you one of the more frightening and horrific things that you describe in the book, at least to me, about what was in that huge wall of aquariums in the different tanks because it sounded like they were experiments that were being kept there kept alive could you describe what that is if it's not too upsetting like did she explain anything to you about why they were there or what their purpose was
2: my memory is that i was standing with toby and um, before we got to that point we were led down a long corridor The inside of this craft had a big, huge open area. It was five stories tall. And it was like a big open atrium with levels all around. And I assume other corridors that led off from that. And uh, when we were headed down this corridor, we rounded a corner and there was a bank of aquariums, fish tanks that covered an entire wall. And they were in graduated sizes from maybe a couple of gallons to, I recall, at least three tubes. They were tube shapes at the end that were empty, thank God. There was nothing in them at all. But in these tanks, I saw things, the largest of which was about the size of a puppy. And I first took it to be a puppy. And it um, was just wrinkles of skin that gave the illusion of ears, like a puppy. And there was pink water in the tank and there was an umbilical cord. But I don't know how it was attached or attached to what. And I recall I was under their control, but one of these things moved while I was looking at it and it scared me to death and its eye twitched. And that's the point when I was in the the interrogation room with Brad, when I recalled that memory, I screamed and passed out or just went blank. Because that's what was very frightening.
1: How did you get to where the aquariums were? Or were you just observing them while you were in the frozen state?
2: We were in a frozen state and we were like on an automatic walkway.
1: So it's almost like you're being paraded past these things and you're taking it in as you're going by.
2: You know, curiously, if I'm in a mall, if it won't exist anymore, and I walk around and I see naked mannequins in a storefront window, that freaks me out. Still freaks me out. And I don't know why.
0: Yeah. Did Betty or Sue explain what they were doing with these? I mean, you had the feeling, of course, that some horrible experiments were going on. But did you ever get a sense or an explanation of what they were doing and why?
2: No. I think I asked the same question three times, and and I never got a straight answer. She told me what she wanted me to know and what she wanted to share with me. She told me that it wasn't wise to speak about the men with the orange insignias. She told me that wasn't wise to talk about that. And I'm doing just that. I'm talking about it.
1: So, well, yeah, well, that brings me to one of my biggest questions. In light of everything you've experienced and the control that these beings have over you and the ability to just do whatever they want, where did you find the courage to come out and go public and write this book and continue to speak. You're speaking this weekend. Why are you not concerned about doing that? And how have you come to grips with the PTSD nature of what you experienced?
2: Uh, That's interesting that you say that because I've been diagnosed officially with PTSD through the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. But remember, I get my medical care through the VA. And I've had some interesting events there that i those events I probably don't want to go into on camera, other than to say that I had to threaten to go to the federal court to get my uh, x-rays. And I found out later I did not receive all of my x-rays. I only received a small portion. After I saw the x-ray, that really did. That hit me like a slap in the face. When I saw that x-ray, I immediately knew that Dr. Bug had placed it there. And um, I had devoted my life to not thinking about this stuff. And because my wife and I discovered that whenever we discussed the topic, then I'd have nightmares. And I felt like I was being punished for talking about it. So um, after I saw the x-rays, I told my wife, I said, a couple days later, because I didn't eat for three days, I I was just a mess. And I told her, you know what I think? I think I need to tell people about this, because I think people need to know that this stuff is real. I think we need to know that we're not secure as citizens, that our government can't keep us safe that there are things that come here that are above us on the evolutionary ladder. We're not top dog by any stretch of the imagination. And um, people don't believe that. People limit their experience and their their base of knowledge to what they see and feel in front of them. And I just want people to know that it's real. That When you see a flying saucer, you're not seeing a drone all the time. Yeah, yeah, you might be some of the time, but people need to know that. And I think that I am in jeopardy somewhat for coming forward, but I also think the more vocal I am, the safer I am. So in that regard, I feel more secure when I can tell my story. And I want people to know this.
0: Well, one really relevant thing I think you said at the end of your book is that, you know, it's such a buzzword now, and people are almost expecting it to happen maybe within the next couple of years, just because of what's been coming up in the news, especially with the Navy and Navy pilots, is that, you know, they're asking you and everyone, When is disclosure going to happen? And your answer is by the US government, never. How it's going to happen is through us, a grassroots movement. Do you really think that we can turn this tide and through our collective knowledge actually affect some change in this area?
2: I do. And uh, that was my thought whenever I finished writing the book. But that was before I got a phone call from Tom DeLong and we had a nice long chat. And uh, he was a perfect gentleman. I don't think the government is denying anymore. I think we're past that. I think we're right smack dab in the middle of disclosure. You wanna talk about disclosure? This is it. This is what it looks like. We've had a soft disclosure with uh, Lieutenant Commander Fravor and the incident that was reported to the New York Times, December 17th, 2017, with that, what I call soft disclosure, uh, with the Tic Tacs. I've seen some Tic Tacs. I have several pictures of Tic Tacs actually. But yeah, I think that pretty soon we're all going to know. I think the tide is going to change because I I think that, you know, my book, when I wrote this book, I got to tell you, honestly, I expected to sell 100 copies and I didn't expect it to catch fire. And I think that had I published it five years earlier, it wouldn't have been so well received. I just happened to put it on Amazon at the right time. You know, I sent it to one independent publisher who sent it back to me three days later with a rude letter. I don't publish memoirs so I decided, well, you know what? I'll do it myself. So that's why I put it on Amazon. I'm pleased to say that it's sold in 11 countries and sold by the thousands. And it's an audiobook or Kindle or paperback. But I'm pleased by that. I'm happy people are reading it and people are engaged in this.
1: One question I think you must get a lot is, once you realize the implants were in there, why didn't you immediately have them removed or, and analyzed?
2: That's the question I get most often. And I'm really glad that you ask it. Because I don't explain it adequately in my book, in 2005 I had a heart attack, and since that heart attack, my heart muscle suffered some minor damage. But you know, nothing that I mean I could go to work and do my job and carry on as a lawyer, no big deal, no long run. But when I discovered these implants in my legs, I made an appointment to see a surgeon, and he was absolutely mesmerized with the objects and said, "I'd love to take these out for you." And of course, being a lawyer, I said, "Well, I, I got a couple." protocol I'd like to follow so that there's a chain of custody. And he's like, yeah, I understand that. I'm willing to do that. You know, Remove bullets from people that have to follow a forensic chain of evidence. So yeah, we can do that. So I'm excited. I'm thrilled. He says, last words out of his mouth is, see your cardiologist can get me a cardiac clearance letter for the surgery. And I'm like, sure. It never crossed my mind that And of course, it doesn't help, I think, that I'm approaching VA doctors. I went outside and spent a lot of money of my own trying to get it done by private surgeons. And nobody would touch me without a valid cardiac clearance letter. And the reason for that is, is that, you know, there are thousands of vets out there walking around with shrapnel in their bodies. And to remove them would pose them to a greater risk of harm from surgery than it is just to leave it alone. If they're in there and they're benign, leave them lie. And I heard that over and over again and no cardiologist would give me a clearance letter and therefore no surgery to remove them.
1: So what ultimately happened to the, can you talk about uh, what?
2: I can. I was warned by Betty or Sue that if I talked about this, that they being the people she works for would come and remove the implants, what you've produced their merchandise. And, uh, I, went ahead with my plans. I told my wife, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to proceed. And three weeks later to the day, I woke up and I felt like someone had hit me in the upper leg with a baseball bat. And I woke up and my first thought I swear was, oh my God, they came in the middle of the night last night and they took away the implant. And in a way I was happy. And then I'm thinking, well, there goes your validity. You know, I've got them on x-ray, but I don't have any proof to show that they've been removed. But I didn't know. I mean, all I know at this time was that I'm in a lot of pain and I need an x-ray to find out. So I go out to try to get an x-ray. Well, you know, you, you, you can't just order an x-ray like ordering a pizza. You can't do it. It takes a doctor's request. A freestanding imagery center won't honor your request to x-ray your leg. So after a couple of days of talking to doctors unsuccessfully, I stumbled into this chiropractor's office and I had the two x-rays showing the things below my knee. And the thing above my knee, I had them printed on printer paper with me and they didn't have an appointment to see the chiropractor. So I waited like 40 minutes and he comes up to me and he says, where do you hurt? And I said, well, I hurt my upper legs, but doctor, what I really need is I need an x-ray of my upper right leg. And I'm holding out this x-ray and I said, aliens came into my home last night or night before last. And I believe that they removed an implant that they placed in my leg sometime 1977 or earlier. And he has me by the elbow and he's walking me toward the door, right? Because he's thinking this guy's crazy. Yeah. But I knew that chiropractors look at 100 x-rays a week. So I just held that up in front of his face. Sure enough, he stopped and he said, come with me. And we went into his office and shut the door. And um, there's people banging at the door and his phone's ringing. And he examined the wounds to the upper parts of my leg. I don't know why I had wounds at the top of my leg whenever the object was buried underneath the skin and the lower but down by my knee, but that's, I don't know, alien technology.
1: I'm glad you said that. I was going to ask that question.
2: But of course, you know, I don't know how far up those wires went either, and I've never been able to get a decent X-ray if one exists, and I think one exists. I'm not privy to it.
0: Well, we've seen one other really astonishing X-ray in our time here on the show, and I got to say, the ones you provide in your book are right up there as far as being strange looking where something shouldn't be. And the one of the that's kind of shaped like a flower petal is very odd. The other one is, I, I had it in my mind, it was going to be more regular as far as the one you describe as being the, uh, the size of a fingernail. It's very square, and you can clearly see wires coming off of it.
2: Yes. You know, the thing that upset the radiologist in the room that day in 2012 was the fact that I had no scar. And uh, medical science can't explain that. There's no way to do that. You know, plastic surgeons would pay a fortune to have that technology.
0: (laughs) Well, it, it kind of reminded me of, you know, when you have a heart problem, they'll go in through the artery in your leg to get all the way up to your heart. Yes. And it doesn't make any sense to us lay people, but it obviously is a really efficient and easier way to get to where they want to go in the body. And that's the first thought I had when you see, The bruises and puncture marks look like insect bites at the tops of your legs, at the top of the thigh.
2: Yeah. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Well, this chiropractor offered, he says, I'm going to write you a prescription for an x-ray and I'll pay for it, but I'd like to have it. I'd like to see it. I had no doubt this guy had some kind of experience. I mean, I just happened on to somebody who had a lot of empathy for someone in my situation. and. I got the x-ray and I looked at it and sure enough, that square fingernail sized thing is gone. And uh, my wife and I looked at it and said, yeah, it's gone. And I dropped the x-rays off at his office. And then he called me later that evening and said, well, did you see it? I said, yeah, I saw that it's gone. And said, yeah, but they didn't get it all, didn't take it all. And he told me where to look because I made a photocopy of it. And there are two tiny wires. They don't reproduce well on paper. And I mean, if you hold them up to a light source, you can see there are two tiny wires parallel to one another next to my femur, about a centimeter long. And I asked him, I said, Doc, why would beings that are so high above us on the evolutionary ladder be so inept as to leave a piece of this stuff in me? And he says, I don't think they're inept at all. He says, I think they just gave you an upgrade. They just gave you the 2017 model of the 1977 model. Mm. that they put in back in the
0: day well it makes sense if it's technology it's got to expand and evolve on their scale at a much more exponential rate you would think and yeah. that's it could be very likely that yeah you're getting something that you know instead of a tape recorder is now something it's the apple watch version of whatever the technology yes. is yes. on a side note have you heard of dr roger lear being one of the uh in his day the implant doctor of sorts
2: I did when I when I came home from the hospital, one of the first things I did was go online and try to find somebody, but he was already in South America by then and he passed away in 2014, unfortunately. I spoke with Daryl Sims, who was very kind. You know, I might mention because I almost forgot to tell you guys that I think it's so important is that after I got out of the military in 1979, I started running. Every time I'd run, when I'd hit the two mile mark, there was a spot on my leg that would go absolutely numb down by my knee and lateral. And it was exactly the same diameter as a Canadian toonie, about the size of a half dollar. Right. And I could take a pen and clearly delineate the edges of it. And it was perfectly round. And uh, the feeling, the numbness and the kind of itchy feeling would would fade away over a course of about 30 minutes and the feeling would return. But when I saw that x-ray, That's part of what gave me such a shock was that I realized that that's right over what I used to call that numb spot, where I used to experience that numbness every time I ran past the two-mile mark.
0: So you do believe that there are still some remnants of whatever was implanted into your leg. Are there any plans to try and get those removed or do anything with those or just maybe tested from outside your body?
2: You know, I can get x-rays from them. The objects that have the floral petal kind of arrangement are still in my leg, undisturbed, still there. But from a radiological point of view, they're the density of bone. They're like bone tissue. So in that regard, if it's leaving tissue, they won't remove it. And I argued, well, can't you biopsy it? And we go around and around in circles with these doctors about, well, you got to have a cardiac clearance letter and... uh, You know, nobody wants the liability of putting their hands on me me having a heart attack and then my wife's all over their malpractice coverage insurance.
0: Sure.
1: Well, Terry, I I just want to thank you profusely for being so generous with your time coming on Astonishing Legends. We want to let everyone know that is interested in Terry's story. You can find his book, Incident at Devil's Den, A True Story by Terry Lovelace. But you can find that on Amazon. Is there anywhere else that people might go to purchase
2: it? Yeah, it's on my website, which is just terrylovelace.com. I don't think I have a link on Facebook, but I have a Facebook page too that has a list of where I'm going to be speaking in case you're interested in attending an event.
1: We will share all that information. And uh, we hope that if you get any updates and you ever want to come back on and talk about anything else, we'd love to have you back. So please feel free to reach out to us.
0: Well, I know a lot of our listeners are going to be fascinated with your story here. I know Scott and I, were—we were, it's just mind-blowing, of course, and some people are going to think it's really outrageous, and some are going to be dismissive completely, and I'm sure you're used to that by now. I am. But what are your final conclusive thoughts on all this, and on, on why you're taking a risk to come out with this, and what do you hope to gain, and what do you hope to let us know about, and hope that we learn?
2: I just want people to know that this stuff is real, that we're not at the top of the food chain, that we're not the smartest, the quickest, that there are other beings out there. It's a great big universe, you know, bigger than our minds can fathom. And there are a lot of things out there we don't understand, but this is something that's important. I think it's important for mankind to know, not that i anything about it that's important, but I just think the message is important. That. There are other entities out there that are smarter and quicker and faster than we are. And, uh, you know, they're involved with us. There's the the author, David Politis, who uh, takes note about the people that disappear from national parks and state parks. And the number is in the thousands and growing. People disappear under incredible circumstances. I don't know if you guys have read any of his books. His fourth book is called The Devil is in the Details. And it talks about all these places with the name Devil in the name, and the places that have the name Devil or Diablo in the name, uh, it's tenfold more likely that you become a missing person from one of these places that have the name Devil in it. And in his book, he talks about little Catherine Van Alst, who disappeared from there in 1946. And I researched the Pittsburgh Press and the Kansas City Star, and I got the story on her. She was running around a trail with her brothers, disappeared for seven days. She's found on the seventh day, is fully hydrated, hasn't lost an ounce of weight, and can't say where she's been. No memory. They found her alive. They found her.
1: Seven miles by air and 600 feet higher
2: elevation. Yep. I did my best to try to find her and uh, found the Van Ost family, but could not find Catherine Van Ost.
0: It seems that Betty Sue, if for lack of a better name, she had kind of a final statement to you, but she did kind of warn you as well not to speak out.
2: She did warn you very explicitly that my government would not be happy with me, specifically on the issue of there being other human beings on board that were members of the crew. She made it clear that the government, this big nebulous thing called the government, the people that are in the government, would not be happy with that knowledge being known, and again, I'm only speculating that they were members of the crew and they were human beings. No, I'm not speculating that at all, I'm saying that for certain. But were they members of, the, of our armed forces? That I can't say.
1: You don't think there's a possibility that they were, I mean, I don't know if this is a, the appropriate phrase, but born and bred in captivity.
2: Yeah, I think that's possible, I do. I don't go into it in my book and I wish I had, but she communicated to me that mankind can't live regionally anymore. that that time has passed, that we have to live globally, and we have to live as a human species. And if we don't do that, we'll self-destruct. And that's a pretty big message. And that's the takeaway, I think. Maybe that's my job. I don't know. Maybe I'm supposed to tell that. I don't know. I don't know.
1: That's going to wrap up our show on Terry Lovelace's experience at Devil's Den State Park. We'll be back next week with part one of a two-part series on the Velisca Axe Murder
0: House. Won't you join us? Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Okay, Astonishing Legends.
2: Hi, I'm Jasmine. Hi, I'm Sophie. Hi
0: there, I'm Bob. W-A-L-L-A-S-S.
2: Galaxy-wide in perpetuity.
0: Until death do we part. Salud.
2: I'm listening to Astonishing Legends.
0: Love the program. Keep up the good work.
1: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and
0: co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps.